Alrighty, a big hello and welcome to episode 38 of the podcast, a cannabis podcast for budding enthusiasts. As always, we want to give a big thank you to our sponsors, Radio Ridge Nursery. These guys have all the primo cuts from the best breeders, including the newest from Fig Farms. All these cuts clean as a whistle and saves you the time pheno hunting. However, they don't have every cut on earth, and so if what you're looking for they don't have, maybe you should head on over to Seeds here now. Grab yourself a pack or two. Find that Keeper Fino for yourself. Guarantee on satisfaction, not just germination. Hit them both up. Radio Ridge Seeds here now. They got what you're looking for. As well as always, a big shout out to 420 Australia and Organic Gardening Solutions. Abroski's from Down Under holding down the fort. Big shout out to the Patreon gang who helped make the show happen. And last but not least, big shout out to our guests for this episode, the dynamic duo that is Dragonfly Earth Medicine. We're joined today by Josh and Kelly for another wicked installment of organic growing and health knowledge. So let's get into it. Alrighty, a big thank you and welcome to two of my favorite humus beings for taking the time to join us again today for the second time. Josh and Kelly of Dragonfly Earth Medicine, thanks so much for sitting down and chatting with us today. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks so much for having us. We're really excited to uh, be here with you this evening. Right back at you. So the first question I wanted to ask is the normal first question, but it wasn't the first question I asked you last time, so it's time to do it. What was your first experience with cannabis? My first experience with cannabis was in utero because my mother liked to smoke hash while she was pregnant and it just felt good to her and she was an old hippie and of the area and maybe she had some morning sickness or some different things she was working out but really she was just a a naturalist that was living in southern Oregon and just wanted to you know be in nature and and that was just part of her medicine so and and so as I grew up I was always surrounded by it and luckily it was I was in southern Oregon so you know that we we saw the first you know sticky kind buds you know coming in and the Oregon big buds and the purple cushions and and I was just lucky enough to always be around it I really never had to smoke you know the Mexican brick and different stuff that people had to smoke and as I grew up I just always had good good cannabis around and so you know that that started my love and I and I never did any other hard drugs or any other things in life because that was just a good print for me so that that was my introduction and then me and Kelly met when I was you know uh, just 19 and that's a long time ago now 26 years but uh um we're we're we're, we're we've had uh, a journey in life since then as well so yeah you know that's something we've already talked about and my first um experience ever was i wasn't like josh doll i w- grew up in virginia um and was super conservative you know very yeah, East Coast conservative family. So I never really saw it around. You know, I, I never had grown up with it. I never saw it around. And then I went out skiing um, in Wyoming when I was probably about thir- 14 years old. And a bunch of skier hot shots were up on top of the mountain and everybody was lighting up joints. And I thought, hey, I think I'll take a hit of that. 
And um, we were at the very top of the mountain and a huge snowstorm came through and it was a total whiteout. And I was stoned for the very first time in my life. And it was awesome. <laughs> so great. I felt like, wow, I could see through the whiteout and I'm the best skier in the world. And this is amazing. And so like Josh, I never really um, went into every heavy drugs or got in really to anything, maybe alcohol for a very, very short time in my life. But cannabis has been a part of my life ever, ever since that day. How important do you feel it is to try to have like a really positive first experience? And how, how much do you think it affects people going forward in terms of whether they're willing to try it again, whether they enjoy it overall? I think that it's it's definitely, you know, that first time is a really important time. It's sort of like it's important, I think, to have a really good experience. And now more and more people are able to have good experiences, I think, because people have an understanding of the different values of oil or hash or whether it's a joint. And even the youth have sort of an understanding and, and it's at, it's at the fingertip, you know, you can go onto the internet and you can learn so much about different cannabinoids and what they might do to you and stuff. But I think, you know, for us at the very beginning, I know for a lot of people that are my age, um, Mexican brickweed was, was pretty much like the first experience that they had because that was what was available you know, in the late 70s and into the early 80s, that's all that I saw. And I think a lot of people didn't necessarily have a very good experience with it, um, maybe because of the way that it was cultivated or maybe because, you know, it was actually really incredibly strong. Whether the the cannabinoids show that it was super high THC or not, it just seemed like those flowers that were coming from Mexico at that time were really strong. So people were having not necessarily a, a great experience, you know, just with that. But there's a lot of um, ways that cannabis is given out nowadays, too. So, I mean, one could have a first experience in so many different ways. It could be Phoenix Tears. It could be Medibles. And so, mm -hmm. you know, there's one. Well, and, and I would take it maybe even one step further and just say, you know, from a, a biological standpoint, we we have, you know, more receptors in our body, CB1 receptors in our body than any other receptors. So we may or may not be, you know, having a complete endocannabinoid system. You know, some people may have taken pharmaceutical drugs. Maybe some people have antibiotics, whatever it was. Maybe they haven't been close to nature. And so maybe their first experience was like, wow, you know, a, a neurological, you know, completion to was almost shocked to their system. And, and that could be, you know, something that that would really affect your first experience. And, and it could be overwhelming, you know, at, at times. But I think that once you start, you know, finding the right dosage or finding the right medicine that works for you, you know, you do start completing your endocannabinoid system, which then allows you to heal in ways that, you know, is adaptogenic and your, your immune system can decide what it is. So, uh, you know, a first response is, is, um, could mean a lot of things based off, you know, your, and I think when your when your endocannabinoid system is really flooded, um, you're definitely going to have a much better, you know, experience mentally and emotionally as well. 
So I think that it's really, I always tell people, if you didn't have a very good experience the first time, it's probably because, you know, your endocannabinoid system is a lot lot like a dry sponge. It takes a while for the cannabinoids to sort of be uptaken by by the body. And, And once that happens, I think the chances of having a good experience are way better. And some people don't even get high on their first smoke. You know, it's like you hear a lot of people, oh, I didn't feel anything. And and then two, three times later, and then by the third time, you're like, oh, yeah, I got it, you know. And so that's that's really interesting, too. And I think that just speaks to the, the molecular biology and, and the natural medicine that it is. So, yeah. Yeah, some really, really interesting points you raised there. One I just want to touch back on quickly is how I think, Kelly, you mentioned how, you know, some of these Mexican strains had such potency to them. A lot of people speak about this idea of how some of the strains people think back on when they first started smoking and they'll talk about them as if they're just so much stronger than the stuff today. And then the counterpoint is raised that, well, because good weed was kind of so sparse and it was just near and far in between where you'd get it, it it, it emphasized that and it maybe makes people feel like things were more potent than they were. Do you feel that's the case or do you feel that there truly was this very unique profile back then which really did make things just kind of blow your socks off? Well, I mean, you always hear, oh, people bred out the CBD and they just only bred for the high and they only bred for THC, which means that at one point there was none of that happening. So that's the early 70s and the late 60s. So at that time, you would think there would be potentially a more complete or wide range of cannabinoids at the time i would i would think you know people talk about oh i smoke a whole lid you know was the the term back in the day and um you know and, and it wouldn't get you totally ripped but it would just be like a beautiful high and you know it was like the flower power and the and like the, the beautiful things of the of the 60s and 70s back to the land all that was really done like on that kind of herb and in that kind of medicated state so I, I also know that, you know, I think it's kind of known that the Columbia, Colombian gold was, uh, was really strong, you know, and, or the Acapulco gold was, uh, you know, really strong too. And, and the, and the Oaxacan, some of the Oaxacan streams were, um, known to be really strong. So I don't think that I've seen cannabinoid reports from back in those days, but, um, that's my gut feeling. Yeah, and I think my take on that would be that the terpene ratios are, you know, really important when we talk about that. I think that, you know, in the interbreeding that we've done, you know, all the way to this point now from, you know, back in the late 60s, we're really breeding for different types of terpene ratios and we keep seeing the myrcene, you know, going up and up, you know, so a lot of terpene profiles are starting to be bred out of it. And I think when you have a really full rich terpene profile, then you have more of a chance of like getting sort of that psychedelic feeling, you know, when you have full cannabinoid, full terpene, I mean, and I, and I've, and I've even seen that now in tests, I'd be like, you know, that one really sort of felt a little bit trippy. I felt a little hallucinogenic with that. And maybe that's what people are talking about because I can think about, you know, my first joints, it was all the Mexican brickweed and um, I was actually going into, I was at school in Arizona for a short time. And I mean, that's the way I made my way through college was sort of swinging that around. And 
I definitely feel like that flower did create a hallucinogenic effect every time that you smoked it. And I could say the same thing about the original purple tie stick that people used to get a hold of or just the tie stick. That was another one that really sort of created like that hallucinogenic feeling And maybe that's what people are talking about when they talk about, you know, getting really high. Maybe they weren't getting necessarily really high, but they were feeling sort of that hallucinogenic psycho, you know. And the terpenes, you know, they do play on that. And if you traveled to Mexico back, you know, throughout your life, you may have seen better Mexican weed, you know, than when it got bricked, you know, it it is true. You know, it affect the terpenes. And so, you know, you'd lose a lot of that. And it is sad. There was um, Paraquat was a was a really big part of you know growing in the Mexican weed. And when my dad was was dying of cancer, he had a medical intuitive that was saying that the Paraquat that was in the Mexican brick weed that that the governmental agents just sprayed from the air from from helicopters was you know uh, was really in that herb right right there. So that's that. Who knows what other and that could have maybe made exactly. you feel more high or yeah. psychedelic too. You know what yeah. was who, being who added knows? to it. But anyway, that's, those are some thoughts. Really, really interesting ideas. And it raises my next point, which is where do you think we're going to go with terpenes next? And the reason why I ask this is because I feel like, you know, to kind of lend from the school of thought of Bodhi, that terpenes are almost like a gateway. Well, cannabis these days is almost like a gateway drug to like wanting to discover terpenes more, you know, like I feel like it's only kind of natural or intuitive to want to get more into like kind of perfumes and alchemy and just generally exploring it more because something I've noticed is like when I've got some incense burning or I've maybe smelt some oud recently if ever I smoke I seem to get way more high even though the terpenes aren't necessarily from the cannabis itself so where do you think we go next with terpenes? Well, I, I like that, that we have the ability to explore different strains and there's a market for it and there's consumer interest in it and there's more education on terpenes. And when you really just start analyzing strains simply from the standpoint of is it high in myrcene or in high in THC or not, it's amazing how many strains are high in myrcene. And that's been said, you know, many times. So when you get into high, you know, beta-osamine or, or terpinaline or, you know, different strains like that. It's, it's a, it's part of getting high. It's, I mean, it's your, and it's just like food, you know, you're letting down saliva or different compounds in your mouth as you smell things. And that's like a pre digester to your food. It's just like kind of a pre high to smell the weed. I mean, that's why you want terpene you know, ratios in your, in your lab test to be, you know, 3% to six, you know, maybe 7% would be amazing because that's part of the high. So, um, so terpenes, you know, food, there's food terpenes. There's, if you're going to extract terpenes and add terpenes to food and use essences, you know, that's a, that's a really big open market. There's countries that won't allow cannabis derived terpenes and there's ones that will, um, but there's also people in the cannabis industry that use food grade terpenes. And did you want to talk about that? Or yeah, no, but um, yeah. So the the food grade terpenes are you know ne- not necessarily made to the same standards or the same purity that a uh, cannabin uh, you know ter- uh, ganja terpene may be made. So having cannabis derived terpenes is you know a really really good thing for uh, medicine and for 
being able to use it in food and different different drinks. And what I see um, in the industry right now, which is what Josh just touched on, is that the more that we abuse this plant and the more that we continue to grow her in a synthetic environment and the more that we disregard um, ecology and disregard the environment and microbiology, the more that the plant is going to react. She's an adaptogen. She adapts. So she's going to adapt to whatever environment that you put her in. And what we notice is that you can take a full spectrum cannabinoid plant with full spectrum terpenes in it. You can put it in a in an environment where she's not being, you know, taken care of and not being regarded in a very high manner. And what's going to happen is that all of the terpene ratios go away, THC rises and the myrcene rises. So to me, that tells me that those are both stressors. There are stressors within the plant that that's what she does when she starts to adapt. Now you can maybe even take that plant that's super high myrcene and really high THC. You can put it into a deep soil, beautiful living bed outdoors under the sun. And then you'll really start to understand what the full genetic is of that plant. I don't think that the way that we are growing now and the way that we're trading these genetics that we think are just the bomb and the fire, you know, is very respectful to the plant. So I feel like she's reacting by, you know, lowering her terpene and hiring her THC counts. And I think that the future of the medicine is nootropic. I mean, and also, you know, full spectrum. And and it's really important to have nutraceuticals over the pharmaceuticals to where the plant is being used. And I think that when people are being given a choice on what they want to smoke or what they want to ingest, if they have a choice between a plant that hasn't been very respected and is put into these heavy synthetic environments with high myrcene and high THC, as opposed to something that has been totally respected and is able to show its full value in its genetics, they're going to choose that full spectrum plant. So I'm really hoping that in the future, more and more people have an ability to be able to um, experience the two different varietals and be able to experience, um, you know, full spectrum. And I would like to think that that's going to be the future of the industry with terpenes. And I think the reason why the terpenes, you know, are better or last longer with living soils is because they have the fungal filaments in the roots eating the microbiology and really adding you know the right waxes and the right terpenes and the right gases within the within the trichomes for the cure to last right you know if it's grown synthetically or you know hydroponically it doesn't necessarily have the same body of flavor you know in the long run and it may not last you know longer than 2 weeks and still be fresh but when a when a plant is grown when we say respectfully, we say, you know, in a, in a, in a living soil that's really active and, and adding metabolites to the soils and to the plants. So the reason why it's better is because it has a complete system that it's working with, with, which allows it to complete its system. So, and I think that a good way to, for people to understand it is I just believe like that high THC, high mercine is really the cortisol of the plant. It's the plant showing its stresses. And then when you have a plant that has full terpene and full cannabinoid ratios, that, that plant is just really full of serotonin. It, it, it like has all of the happy things. And I believe that you really feel that as well. You know, when you're ingesting a plant that's happy, you're going to have a way higher chance of, 
of having a better experience. Of course, so many points we need to touch on. But I mean, the first one which comes to mind is when you reference kind of, you know, growing the plant respectfully and how that means in a really nice, well-catered organic matter. To me, it raises the idea of, is it possible, because I'm not sure myself, is it possible to grow, quote, organically in a cocoa medium? Well, you know, then you just start getting into terms, you know. So, I mean, yeah, it's possible to probably like for the, you know, the USDA, which is just you'd have to check your country, you know. But I'm sure that you could just use organic products that are certified and say, yeah, it's organic. But from our standpoint, you know, the organic has been hijacked in that from that perspective. And and that's why regenerative makes a lot of sense to us because to say the word regenerative really means you're regenerating life, which means you have living soils. And so uh, those soils are aiding in the medicine and that makes the medicine better. So, um, you know, to have a more diverse soil is going to be more regenerative and, and uh, from our perspective, more natural and, and better than organic. And then you, you're really addressing the endophytic reaction, which is within the plant, which is something that we're just absolutely, you know, fascinated with because I'm incredibly fascinated with the human microbiome as well. So if you take a plant and you're growing it in cocoa and you're giving it organic um, amendments like what Josh says, sure, you can say that it's grown organically, but was it grown naturally? Was it grown in a biological way? The answer would be no, because you're not really creating any biology in your cocoa coir. There's no living food web. There's no, you know, microbiology. And it really doesn't allow the plant to reach its full potential because a full potential of a plant is when you have maximum endophytes within it and it's all working within the soil and all the way up to the leaves it's a it's a complete cycle and microbiology you know it's like well you can you can say that you could be on an organic diet too like if you you know are are getting fed through an iv tube or something like that you can say well you could put organic you know nutrients into the iv and the person can stay alive and you can say well they have an organic diet but they're completely passing the microbiome, which is the digestive system, which is the same as when you're you're taking away that living soil attribute. So is that person who's, you know, living on this organic IV diet gonna have the same, you know, full immune stimulus response as the person who's using their digestive tract and a full living microbiome? You know, the answer is no, it's really no different for a plant. Of course, of course. It reminds me of like a use it or lose it attitude. But it raises a very interesting point around classifications and certifications. I've long been very skeptical of the OMRI certification. I'm sure a lot of people are as well. You can. It takes, you know, no less than five seconds to find a product that's clearly not organic that has an organic certification on it. So it raises the question do we just look to avoid it and just go based off things you know for sure are organic? Because you often hear people say, oh, I don't use anything from a bottle. But at the same time, there are some products I use that come from a bottle that I know are full well organic. So how do you kind of uh, navigate this minefield as it may be? 
Well, you touched on something really important, which is OMRI. OMRI is a registration. It is not an organic certification. And if you go onto OMRI's website, that's the first thing that they say. It's a registry. And the language is really powerful and important because OMRI will state that this is you know, um, able to be used in an organic for use in organic, yeah, agriculture. for use in organic agriculture, but it's still up to the third party certifier on whether that's organic or not. So it's, it's only a registry created within that system that says, if, you know, you if you didn't have a product available when, when in need, you know, that you had the ability to use a chemical here and there. And so, and so we, you know, and this is not just a philosophy. So we we have over the years been very. Since we have products, as you know, you know. So we've had all of our products tested. So we're testing raw materials for twelve years now, and and we, you know, we're really aware of of what's where there's glyphosate, you know, and glyphosate is just one compound, you know, there could be Dacamba or just there's a thousand other compounds, but that are defoliants and whatnot. But so, but we're careful about that. So. You know, do, do you look for a certification? Well, you know, I think at this point it's just a matter of education. You know, if someone says they're biodynamic, you know, that may or may not be to the USDA standards or it may, um, but you would probably feel pretty good about it because, you know, the biodynamic standards are strong and, and people are really of the earth um, that are doing that and they're making the world a better place. Um you know, other, other organic standards that are based solely on products. So you can have an organic product in a bottle, but it, if it's, it, it still has to have a, a stabilizer in it. And usually that stabilizer is a small percentage of non-organic compounds. So, I mean, from our certification, we really recommend against anything in bottles and go with raw materials because that's just the closest thing that you can get to something that's natural which is going to feed your microbiology if you're getting something in a bottle if it's not like expanding and blowing up in the bottle then it's not alive really if it's in a liquid you know it's it's being stabilized and i'm not saying it's not useful because obviously people are using things in bottles and growing plants so it's it's not that it's just if you want to regenerate life on earth, you have to go, you know, beyond, beyond the bottle. And so that's, you know, we have our certification and, and we've gone beyond just certifying products. Like our, our certification is not, okay, give me a list of products, you know, and, and let's go through this, this process of deciding whether there's heavy metals in them or, or, um, uh, maybe, you know, something like, pyrene three ends or something that's going to fail a test. So what we do is we say, okay, well, let's try and grow it naturally. Let's try and enhance our natural biome and our natural plants. So certifications can mean a lot of things. And, and, and it really is a, it, it takes education to learn what each certification is about. Yeah, of course. So would your rule of thumb in general be, you know, if, if you want a, something from a bottle, so to speak, just make it yourself? I mean, that's what we suggest. And I, I think also, you know, we we created the certification and we've actually even had people say, well, it's so romantic, you know, it's like something that people could only strive for and maybe not or, or only dream of and not really do. 
And the reason why we created the standards that we created, which is really utilizing as many closed loops as you can, whether you're an indoor gardener, whether you have a tiny little small plot in your backyard, there's still so many easy things that you can do to become closed loop. And it wasn't because it just is sort of this romantic idea. What we're realizing is that the more closed loop that you are and the more vigilant that you are about what is to your plants, then you don't even have to sweat it when somebody buys your whole stock and they turn it into a concentrate. Because what we're seeing over and over again is people that are organic certified and they're following all the organic, you know, certificate or all of the organic registering uh, products out there that they're still failing. Yeah. And Department of Agriculture is like, yeah, thumbs up. It's so awesome. You could totally do this. This is organic. It's USDA or it's Canadian certified or whatever it is then the the flowers are concentrated and they fail heavy metals tests. They fail all, all different kinds of crazy tests because they're, they're concentrating it because it's becoming concentrated. So whatever was in that flower, what was ever in the soil or whatever was in your, your soilless medium is going up into your flower. This idea of like, oh, you can flush it out. You know, we always thought it was a joke and now science is proving it to us that it's a joke. You know, it doesn't just flush out. It goes up into the plant and it stays there for its duration and it stays there all the way until, you know, it's done. And and then you turn it into a concentrate and it becomes really apparent. And there's too many farmers out there that have lost their entire crop because it's turned into a concentrate and they fail a test. So it's really beautiful. It's like cannabis is giving us this beautiful opportunity right now to look at our food sources, to look at big agriculture, to look at the at what we're feeding our plants, to 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 all of a sudden have a look at the apples that are, you know, in the store and wonder, geez, you know, what's in this? Because now I know with cannabis testing, it, it's just really leading the way and and it's not surprising because it's a master plant and it's what she she does. Well, she gives us different ideologies and she gives us, you know, different keys and, and solutions, you know, when we ingest her and also when we cultivate her. And, and it's not just, um, you know, because we don't believe in the system. It's just when we, you know, we've learned that 75 million tons of topsoil have been lost since the Industrial Revolution. And we know that. Um, you know, there's a million species on Earth that are, you know, potentially going extinct. Maybe the Great Barrier Reef is dying. You know, so what we're trying to say is, you know, our our certification is certifying farms. When we say that we're regenerative, we know we're regenerating life on Earth, and it's really meaningful to us. And we're we're growing medicine that's beyond just the term organic. Or the term organic at this point is just a sort of a word that's just been you know, hollowed out by the system, you know, and so what we're doing is we're, you know, these, these closed loop systems are, are creating ingenuity on the farm. So, you know, we can put carbon back into the soil because agriculture, you know, releases up to 12 gigatons of CO2 a year. I mean, there's, there's so many reasons why we have to do better. And we, we know the small farms have to save the earth. So we're creating small farm webs that are saving the earth. That brings us to a perfect next point, which is that I've had a lot of people message me from 
both around Australia, New Zealand, and even some other distant parts of the world. And all of them ask questions along the same line, which is, you know, how can I become a, uh, a pure farm myself? Maybe not in a farm sense, but, you know, how can I try to get my little tent or my little, uh, you know, backyard plot as closely aligned with the dragonfly ethos as possible? And I guess it raises an interesting point, you know, will you guys be looking to expand internationally with the certification? We already have. We, we already are international. And that's the beauty of this is because it's community run and community involved and and it it really is creating sort of a network, um, you know, as the web gets wider, the weave gets tighter and we all have an understanding you know, Josh and I go out and we and, and we do consultations or, or we or we talk to people and I always say, you know, people are like, Whoa, that was so amazing. It was so great what you said and I always say, Well, I didn't really teach you anything, I'm just reminding you. So I think that we have all of this great knowledge deep within our DNA of what we know is right on the earth and when people, you know, hear about what we're doing in the certification, there's so many that want to jump on because they're reminded of something that they know is a better solution than than what's happening now and no matter what size you know plot you have you can be pure certified you know we 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 talk about having six closed loops and the importance of that and um, you know so we're certifying all different size farms from huge massive hemp farms you know to to small backyard plots and 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 there is a limitation on massive you know hemp farms and stuff but you that's know true. when it talk you need to talk about 10 acres you know regeneratively or or 20 that's that's pretty big and and stuff so that's that's the way we're what we're thinking there and and so we have a, you know um edel green uh farm out in switzerland who are certified and uh, there's three farms in canada that are certified and there's farms around the u.s we went to thailand and we're in communication with farms um with uh, some some local farmers in thailand and um, we really do want to expand it into the world, it w- and we do travel quite a bit in the world. So we would love to to visit an area to really define what it is bioregionally. You know, p- what pure certified would mean, or what you know regenerative would mean in a bioregion. And right now, we're not certifying a lot of indoor farms. What we have is mostly sun-grown out outdoor farms and people with food gardens and so the part of the requirements of what we have is to have a food garden and to have pollinator and flower gardens aside from your cannabis or or even better mixed in with your cannabis so and it can be done indoors and we are working on creating a, a pure certified indoor um a certification which would and entail um you know um some type of alternative energy or some um ways that you've lowered your energy use in your grid using led lights or or some kind of a mixed spectrum um so um yes i you know we would just like to tell people out in the world please get in touch with us i mean you know what we're interested in is really earth stewards uniting and telling our story together um it doesn't have to be just cannabis we you know food farms are out there getting in touch with us too um wineries anyone really it's it's kind of a way of life you know, and we, we support each other the best we can as family, um, you know, to, to just be natural and, and make a difference. And, and also we, we find ways we can work together with business. 
And it's not it's not an exclusivity thing. It's it's absolutely Earth Stewards Unite. It's it's so important if you have these wonderful ideas and there's a way that you can make a change within your own, you know, community or your own neighborhood, you know, do it. If something inspires you, then we're just really encouraging people to do it. See what happens. You know, part of the pure certification that we do all also is that you have to be part of community education in some way. So, you know, go out and share, share your successes, share your failures, you know, talk about what worked and what didn't work. We have, we're at this wonderful like bell curve of knowledge in, in the human race right now. We're able to find knowledge at a single touch of the button and we're sharing knowledge in such an excited way. And I think that, you know, the more that we're able to align with nature, she has more and more solutions with us. And and that's really, you know, the main connection. Not only are we connected by this master plant, but we're also connected for, with our love of nature. And also, I'll just, just add really quickly that our our, ulti- our best way of, of taking on new areas is to find a, a model farm, say in Australia or New Zealand, you know, a model farm that would have us, you know, show up at the farm. We could have a gathering where we met, you know, local farmers. And then what we do is we, because our certification is free, it's more about, you know, being able to complete all of the requirements. And and then once we visit, you know, say that model farm, then we could create a, a peer-reviewed um, inspection. So when, once one farm is... Uh, uh, certified, then they go out and certify other farms and then they can tell from that farm whether it reflects, you know, the level of standards and ethics that they have. And that's the way that it builds within each region. So we may come for the original one and maybe we try and come back again later, you know, on other years, but, um, it becomes peer reviewed and it, and it's, we take it really seriously. So all farms are having everything, you know, every input on the farm is, is tested and inspected to human, uh, grade quality and art and all of our products are also, you know, tested in laboratories. So, you know, we, we have to walk our talk and, and create medicine that's, um, you know, really valuable to the market. Most certainly. So at the start of that one, you mentioned that you had been looking at some stuff in Thailand. I noticed that you've been posting a reasonable amount of content from Bali. What's your involvement with that? Um, We've been going to Bali for a really long time. Uh, Let's see, I think maybe about 17, 17 years we've been going to Bali and, and it started with me at the beginning is that I was, um, Josh and I were both instrumental in opening up a free clinic for women and in a birthing center. So also for pregnant women, as well as postnatal women to be able to come in and receive help, um, to receive care. So that was something that we started and we just kept going back. And then when the tsunami happened, um, uh, we were the first boots on the ground in the Aceh province. Um, we worked with uh, permaculture um, NGOs. EDEP was one, and Walhi, which was Friends of the Earth. And we we worked with other world NGOs to to come together to create you know safe place for women and children during um, chaos. So we we did a lot of work in in that area, and also supported a clinic in Bali as well. Mm-hmm. 
So many, we have a lot of family. It's 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 sort of another home for us. It's another heart space for us in the world. So when we go there, we you know we see a lot of family and friends, and I get to be surrounded with a lot of older children that I got to see you know into the world. So it's it's just a it's a route for us. And we we do custom sarongs and make custom sarongs, but we we also you know that's a side thing. But um, we um, work with permaculture. You know we 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 really like seeing the expansion of permaculture that's happening on Bali and there's a lot of international people there and and just a lot of really amazing food to table uh farm to table um raw food places and and farms that are really beautiful there so it's it's been really fun to watch the conscious expansion yeah being one of the countless Australians who's been to Bali myself I can attest that the uh the food there's great and the fact that it's grown locally and organically only helps I guess the question I'm wondering is what's the local production of cannabis like there because from my extremely extremely limited experience it was it was hard to find decent quality stuff but that's very much from the perspective of like you know uh, someone who's not in the loop with any of the locals or anything what's it like when you're a part of that inner circle well, in Bali particularly, we wouldn't recommend it at all. You know, um, it's a very, Indonesia is incredibly strict. Um, even though a lot of the the older Balinese, and especially when you go over to Sumatra, you know, you definitely see a lot of the locals using cannabis and it's sort of a normalcy for them. Um, some, of, some of the most isolated cannabis in the world, you know, that I believe to still be, you know, true land race is in Sumatra or is in some of the islands in Indonesia because it's been so blocked off. But, you know, if you, if you go to Bali, it's a really good time to take a break. It's, it's not a time to ask people on the streets, you know, where to find it or where to get it. Um, you know, people are found with, with five grams and they're spending 17 years in jail as Australians. It's not something that you want to be doing. And really the quality that you get is going to be from another Island. So, um, you know, I would just really recommend to people that that's just not a, a place where, where cannabis mixes with their vacation. <laughs> but, uh, but of course you see a lot of these old land races that I was just talking about. And that's something that I'm really interested in. You know, when I went and worked over in Sumatra for many months, I learned a lot about um, the relationship that the locals had there with cannabis. It's a very tight, close relationship. It's something that they used to calm down. It was something that they used in their daily life. Um, when they would come into the clinic, I would say, you know, how much do you smoke? And they would say, well, I smoke, you know, six of these. And they would point to their breast pocket that had the tobacco. And they'd say, I'd smoke eight of these a day. And that's, you know, the cannabis pocket. So, even though there's this really incredible sort of strict regiment um, and laws. Sharia law. Yeah, and Sharia law. law. It's really interesting. ACHE is A-C-E-H, which is an acronym for Arabic, Chinese, European, and Hindustani. And um, it's, 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 it's just because C is, is, is that sound in Indonesia. But that, the ACHE region is in northern Sumatra, and it's one of the most strict Islamic areas in Indonesia, but it's where all the herb is grown. So it's super kind of like, and they have gorilla kind of, they had the, the, you know, different autonomous 
regions there and and they they say that the the weed came from india back in the the dutch trading days and stuff so i you know exactly how long it's been on sumatra <clears throat> maybe hundreds of years we don't really know exactly because it is really closed off but it, it is interesting how it's in common you know the common person's possession in northern sumatra you know in that area and it's a real tall thin leafed variety that has, you know, uplifting terpenes, uh, you know, more like a lemonine, beta-caryophylline, terpinaline. Um, they take an incredibly long time to flower. Um, so they're really reminiscent of, of just interesting cannabis that, you know, is not something that, and it definitely gives you a very different feeling. You know, we were talking earlier about, oh, you know, those old land races and what does it make you feel like? Well, you know, that really isolated, very far removed and not interbred with a lot of the modern cannabis um, of today really gives you a totally different way than than what the modern uh, cannabis does. And we brought some seeds. It's back. So, you know, we're trying to give it a try to germinate them. It can be a little difficult. But you know what? We we are always a little bit of, a, you know, crafty, let's say. <laughs> yeah, things manage to just appear back at home somehow. <laughs> and Malaysia's laws are changing. So we're really hopeful that Indonesia's laws change with that, with Thailand's change, the world, you know, is changing. And, and I would love nothing more than to be able to, to work with hemp or hemp oils in Indonesia because there's crazy sicknesses happening there and and I'm in love with rice and what's happened with rice is their staple diet is creating a lot of weird illnesses there so I mean they they could really use the medicine and it would be nice to see some law changes there. And it was great this time that we went to Bali there was more and more people asking us about it and really absolutely you know how I was talking about earlier of just being reminded that this is a good medicine and they would say oh well my grandmother used that in tea absolutely you know there's no like bad reflection you know on cannabis or they haven't been through like any kind of a political move they just know that it's illegal but they don't really get why it's illegal and you it's, know. it's in the village, but it's not given out to the tourists. It's, there's a clear distinction and stuff. So, yeah, that's that's what's happening there. Yeah, kind of backs my uh, limited experience. Admittedly, I was, what, 14 when I went there, so many moons ago. But uh, to jump onto something a little more recent, it's been well over a year since we last talked. Probably should have asked this a little earlier on, but what's new in the world of Dragonfly? Oh, so much. I feel like, you know, one week in the cannabis industry feels like a year. So there's so much that's happening right now. You know, we just wanted to be humble cannabis farmers and producing beautiful medicine for sick people. And now all of a sudden we're learning about genetic coding and patenting and markering and takeovers and and creating a business and how you have to you know learn the rules so you know how to break them and it's just and federal licensure and how to do it without a consultant and you know still having our products and still growing a whole new garden every year but mostly exciting the most exciting thing we think is just 
the, the, the collective of farmers and businesses that we're working with and the science of regenerative cannabis tour that we've been doing is really amazing. And just the expansion of knowledge of organic and regenerative practices. And we've recently formed an online communication hub where we can all communicate with each other live. And it's really, really excellent because there's, you know, you know, 75 people on there that are very, you know, active and we all can communicate with each other. And, and it's just really, really helpful. And I think like as much of the heavy feeling of licensure and the man coming down on you and heavy duty fines and all that sort of stuff, or, you know, people having to close up their farms because they can't make, you know, they're in economic struggles, you know, as much as all of that is really difficult and that is happening is as equal of what is fabulous and fantastic that's happening right now. I mean, we are so totally sparked on by people. You know, this is a perfect example. We we got back from Indonesia. We had been on a flight for, I don't even know, it felt like 36 hours. Josh and I hadn't slept. We spent two hours in, in Vancouver and like, it's great in Vancouver. So we were able to like smoke some bowls right there in the airport, <laughs> just right outside of the airport. And then we flew on to Michigan and it was dark and it was snowing and we had just come from Indonesia. We're like, what in the heck are we doing here? This is totally crazy. And then not even five hours later, we walked into a room of people at the conference at the science of um, regenerative cannabis conference. And it only took one second to realize why we do this. Like, as much as it seemed like, whoa, that was a really crazy journey, like the energy in that room of people that just want to connect over this plant and want to connect over nature and want to connect over like learning about microbiology and how to better their life and how to get off their pharmaceuticals because it's all in relation. You know, we really have this understanding that if you have healthy soil, then you have healthy life. And it's like all of that is happening, too. So it's this really beautiful yin and yang right now. And I feel like they're equally as potent. And it's and, and, and that's why I say, you know, one week in the cannabis industry is a year because so much is happening within that one week that, you know, you really want to like hold on to it and soak it up because it's just all so potent. And the farm bill passed and the hemp is, a, you know, a really big frontier and feminization of seeds. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot that we've been we've been talking about. So that can spark, uh, you know, more conversation. So you guys brought up the uh, science and regenerative cannabis conferences. How has that been and what types of things can we expect to see kind of springing forth as a result of those conferences? Well, um, what's really beautiful about the conferences is that it is really rooted in science and it does go through and, and give you really nuts and bolts information from really good presenters um, but it's almost been become like a spiritual thing, too, because, I mean, farmers have to band together right now. And, and not only is it exciting to create a natural system and get, you know, good product, it's also kind of a beautiful networking um, opportunity for people to come together. So, you know, <clears throat> we did it in, internationally this year for the first time in Vancouver and, um, farms are just becoming, you know, they're just branding themselves here in, in Canada and British Columbia this year. So they, they haven't been able to, you know, 
say, you know, I'm a farm until, you know, now. So there's, it's now almost new here. Um, Humble, I know was, it was really, really amazing. And farmers are really, really coming together and showing up in numbers and just really seed swapping and sharing seeds with each other. It's really just an open public domain of, knowledge sharing and it's not just a presentation you know we're we're staying in the parking lot in between we're eating together we're we're staying around at night and so we're really really connecting with the crowd and and going to areas where they really haven't had conferences like maine and michigan and a lot of people you know were saying that you know i came here to learn about science of soil and cannabis and I left with 120 brand new, amazing friends that I know that I can call within a minute. So it's like what these are giving us is inspiration. Like there's so many crazy things going on in the world and you turn on your TV and if you get sucked into those doldrums of whatever that is, it's like we need to get out of that. We need to just look at each other in the faces and talk about things that inspire us. And it's so amazing to be in a room with all of that, those people that are that inspired by nature, that really want to make a change in their own lives. And we really, you know, recommend that. You know, you asked earlier, what can people do? They really want to do something. What we recommend is start with yourself. It starts with self-love and it starts with wanting to make changes within your own body. And then that ripples out. And when you have all of those wonderful feelings about yourself and the health and well-being within your own body, then it's really easy to educate. It's really easy to get the word out because you're really walking, you know, your talk. And, you know, there's there's like we said, there's science presentations and then we will have our pure certified farmers panels in the evening where you can do question and answer and it gives each farm an opportunity to say what they do on their farm that you know maybe has taken some of the practices that are being taught and shown people how they've put it into action so it's really useful for people that are attending the the conference to hear you know from five different farms that are you know publicly you know creating medicine and and putting themselves out there to say hey this this is how i've taken these systems and put them into action and and that's been really useful the question and answer and um and the genetics talks and you know there's a lot with genetics right now so um there's been a lot of a lot of talk about that bit of a left of field question but do you find that the people who attend these conventions or in general just people are part of say the pure family tend to gravitate towards certain types of genetics or do you think it's rather a diverse spectrum diverse yeah i think it's diverse but there's more and more topics of full spectrum cannabinoid profiles and full spectrum terpene profiles and the importance of that in really bringing forth the medicine so that, you know, we can hold a good voice for the plant. So it seems to me like, you know, more and more people are gravitating to that. But of course the old strains are out there and people are, I mean, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a good amount of us that are keeping land race alive. There's a good amount of us that are really keeping hash strains and, and searching for the best hash strains you know, this is a big part of it. Hemp is a, is a big part of it. And a breeding project for hemp is, is a really big part of it. Um, you know, I wouldn't say that everyone loves, 
you know, gas or fruit or floor. I, it really is. It's something for everyone. I think that's that's what's awesome about it. It's it's never. Uh, it's always different. Of course. So, part of strain selection for any farmer is considering the types of pests you have to deal with in your area or within your grow environment. I remember at the Emerald Cup last year, I asked a question that was essentially around the lines of. What happens to the predator bug excretions? Like, is that a problem in itself? And our colleague on the panel, Ron, gave a fantastic answer. But I also remember having a look over and seeing this huge grin on Kelly's face when I asked that. I would love to know, what's your opinion on this? What happens to the bug poop? <laughs> um, you know... There's an incredible web of microbiology. And, you know, if you're even somebody that wants to order predators out there in the world, you already probably are not spraying crap on your plants and you're and you have if you look under a, a microscope you would see a tremendous amount of microbiology and there's cyanobacteria that's on the leaf structure of the plant and when you have a really healthy plant you've got a huge diversity of different cyanobacteria different types of fungi on there so a lot of the times if there is predator poop it is actually being digested by what's already on the plant, you know, the microbiology, it feeds the plant, you know, the more, you know, natural excretions that happen in the plant, and the more that we mimic nature, which, when you're mimicking nature, you're going to have an incredible diversity of both microbiology and macrobiology on your plants. And if you allow, you know, that nature and that full, you know, potential, you know, of, of what is possible within nature, then the plant is really absorbing that and it becomes an incredible nutrient for the plant. So that's probably why I was smiling. I was thinking, oh, that's probably mm. just good food for the plant. <laughs> and depending on what state you're in and, and what your your requirements are for passing tests, I mean, you know, you have to be extremely careful nowadays with what happens with your flowers and yeah. whatnot and stuff. And 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 there's there's pathogen tests and and Aspergillus is you know things that have been brought up that have mm -hmm. may maybe have been associated with predators and stuff. So, you know, you it, it's 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 the system that's been created to grow cannabis in is almost impossible. So I think it's amazing that people are doing as well as as they're doing. And and honestly, like in life, you kind of need to be able to to eat like microscopic insect poop or smoke it even. That's that's <laughs> what I think. But just to survive, you know. Of course, of course. Because then it creates an immune response within the plant and within your own body as well, which is just incredibly important. We're suppressing our immune response with all of these outside sources of just like sterilize, sterilize, antibiotics, kill the microbiology. And the more that we learn, we're realizing that microbiology is what's clean. So, yeah. you know, worried about a little bit of poop that's from a predator, you know, might, it's definitely something to look at if you're doing really strict regimen of testing. But as far as a home grower or somebody that, you know, is, is just making medicine for other people and for themselves and sharing it. I mean, that's awesome. And, and also, you know, you probably don't want to get your predators really late in your flower cycle. It would be a really good idea to allow them to, you know, eat, eat all of uh, the pathogens on there, you know, several weeks before harvest. 
Yeah, fantastic. And I think, you know, I, I don't ask that as though I feel like it's a major problem. I ask it because it's it's the commonly used line which people who are, whether overtly or kind of more subconsciously, are critical of predator bugs and maybe organics in general. That's what they use to try to kind of discredit it. And I think it's an interesting point, but maybe not as valid as maybe a other one they could come up with. But I digress. Something we also spoke about last year, though, was how big of an issue aphids were. How do you guys advocate to combat it? You know, it's it's an ever-changing problem. What's your solution to aphids or just in general bugs outdoors? Polyculture. Absolutely. Um, there's a wonderful example. Uh, you can go into Williams, into Southern Oregon, and we have a whole lot of pure farms there and a lot of friends that have farms in that area. It's definitely like a cannabis mecca in the world. So when you go into Williams area, you're seeing, you know, cannabis farms pretty much almost every single property. There's the rare property that's not growing cannabis. And they got hit really hard with aphids this year. Aphids is absolutely the new pathogen that everybody needs to prepare for. And we know of one farm, and that's Casey over at Rising Phoenix, um, Phoenix, Phoenix Rising. Rising Farms. And he did an overabundance of pollinator like garden, like you wouldn't believe flowers just he everywhere. Farm. He has a gorgeous farm, and he did flowers everywhere, and he didn't have one single aphid at all because wasps eat like triple their weight in aphids in a day so and same with you know all these different types of bugs out there as well as bees and i mean and as well as birds um so that's just a perfect example and, and maybe you have a nursery in a greenhouse and you can do a heat treatment at 120 degrees for 50 degrees centigrade you, you know, two hours or whatnot, and, and maybe three, and you just monitor it, and make sure the plants are doing good. But you, you can heat treat a, a nursery pretty easily, and that's a really clean, easy way to deal with it. Also, you know, a good spray with water um, early on can 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 get them. But you know, that's another thing. And and some people have had success after heat treatments um, uh, with with like a a good uh, oil swing. Oh yeah. We've had the the best experience when 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 it first came out. I noticed it right away. I said, "Whoa, this is not a normal aphid." I don't care what anybody says. This is we're not dealing with a normal aphid. So, so, I put it into jars. I fed it all these different things. I was watching how many it was reproducing or cloning itself. I was feeding it all different types of foods, you know, even brassicas and it was running from the brassicas. Like what aphid runs from a brassica? Like Aphids survive off of brassicas, you know, it's their number one food source. And this one was so different. And it has like these little hooks on its chest that other aphids don't have. So I knew that we were like up against something really interesting. And the way that it was, you know, propagating um, itself was like quadruple the rate at that time. And so we're really watching this. And I think Josh and I, you know, we put this out on Instagram right away and uh, many, several years ago. And people were like, what is that? Those look like normal aphids, you know? And what we noticed is I sprayed probably 25 different oils on it and all different homemade things and things that I could. And finally, we just came to what would happen if we mess with the bacterium, which is inside of the aphid, 
which has to be some kind of have have some kind of a heat issue going on. And that bacterium is what helps it propagate and what clones itself. So if you mess with that bacteria, which is inside of the aphid, bringing the temperature up high, then it sterilizes it. And we realized that really soon on. So we started doing tests and how many hours and how high did the temperatures need to get? And were they harming any of our uh, pollinators or, or was it harming some of the other important, you know, insects that we had within the greenhouse? And we really came to that 120 degrees for two to three hours and your pollinators just thrive in that heat the plants thrive in that heat as long as they're damp and they're not in small pots you cannot be heating up the roots to that but the plants really thrive in that and the aphids are completely sterilized and then within a very short period of time all of your insects that like to eat the aphids will come in within a couple of days and just pick them off because they're not propagating and and recolonizing themselves so heat treatment I think above and beyond anything else, it's absolutely the way to go. Um, and also pollinators if they're outside because they are in our natural environment. I don't know where they came from. They came like an incredible vengeance. Um, I would you know, venture to say that somebody made them up as an evil plan, but you know, I can't you know, put my finger on that by any means, but it just, the way that it came into our community and they weren't just being passed by clones because we don't use clones. We, we only started with seeds and all of a sudden they were here. So I think, I think that pollinators, if you're outdoors and heat treatment for greenhouses and indoors. Some really solid suggestions there. I remember that another major point that I took away from that discussion was that the use of essential oils was potentially a lot more problematic than people are aware. Would you be able to go into a little more depth for our audience who maybe haven't been able to hear that discussion? Um, well, I mean, for me, I don't, I don't really like to be covered in oil. You know, I, I don't know about you, but sort of that thick, oily feeling all over your body is really no different than what the plant feels. And when you're spraying heavy oils or any kind of volatile essential oils or even like a coconut oil, then that's going to immediately change the microbiome on your leaf surface. And when you change the microbiome of your leaf surface, then you're allowing in other problems. And I always look at what you do to your garden should be, you, you don't look at the first ripple, you know, like if you drop a stone into water And I know I've said this before, but if you drop a stone into water, it's not the first ripple. You need to look at the very last ripple. So if you spray your plants with essential oils for pests, are you going to be bringing in more pathogenic leaf mildew, you know, or what other factors or Or stressors are the plant? Yeah, light sensitivity or what other stressors are the plant going to have? So it's really not a solution. And it's it's definitely... and it's, and it's more of an allopathic look at it rather than a real holistic look, which we really encourage people to look at their gardens more holistically so then we can have a better understanding of looking at our own health more holistically because cannabis has an incredible lesson to teach us all, which is, you know, what she thrives best in is is what we also thrive best in. Yeah, of course, of course. 
So, what do you think of the Emerald Cup in general? We've had a little discussion about our talks thus far, but the overall consensus I've had from a variety of guests on the show is that the kind of overall vibe and more specifically the energy that's normally in the air just wasn't quite there last year. How do you feel about that one? Well, first of all, we really, really love the Emerald Cup and... um, you know, Tim, we didn't know that was going Tim, on because we were Tim. in our teepee. <laughs> it's awesome in our teepee. So. Well, <clears throat> I mean, in all fairness, I guess it's the laws that have changed, you know. So the laws in California have dictated the way the event can run. So, I mean, it's not like, you know, Tim and Taylor came out and said, oh, you know, we're going to or hazel whatever we're gonna we're gonna run this you know like this you know you know they're they're trying to do the most heartfelt amazing you know show that they can do you know with the laws that they've been given and and if you want to get get upset at something get you know get upset at the the state of california and and the way that they've created you know distribution you know for farmers and so, because now you know you're not going to get as many farmers as you did before because they're probably through some kind of distribution company, and maybe the distribution company is awesome, or maybe they're not. But um, you know that the tents were different than they were before, and and you could you know to get directly to a farmer was different, but there was as many panels as there always was, and. You know, for us, the Emerald Cup is a really great experience because we have two teepees and we have our cocoa going and we have all of the farmers that we're working with um, around the whole time. And we're, we're, we're giving, you know, we're, we have seed exchange happening and, um, you know, we're able to, to, you know, consume and just really enjoy each other and really talk a lot of stories. So, I mean, we, we have like, you know, epic times at the Emerald Cup. And, and I would say, you know, times have changed and that that's what's hard. But at the Emerald Cup, it's still a gathering of, you know, some of the most amazing farmers in California. And there's really not another event that's, you know, better than it at all. And so, you know, we're really stoked about what they've done and we're proud to be part of it. And I can feel, you know, where those people are coming from, too. And I think, you know, Josh really hit the nail on the head is that what people are feeling is the new regulations. What people are feeling is, you know, not that same direct voice from the farmer, not the same type of diversity. They're feeling that, you know, three years ago, a tremendous amount of farms that were there are no longer in business because they couldn't stay in business because the exorbitant licensing fees or timing or, you know, people who have applied for licenses and it's just sitting or, in an office, you know, for years. Their pond. I mean, good. It goes, uh, it, it goes on and on and on the incredible regulations that farmers and breeders and extractors and product makers are under is, is is so significant that it absolutely doesn't surprise me that people felt that energy at the Emerald Cup. Yeah, so I think the general consensus we have within the community in the moment is that there is a lot of elements of disunity and I guess distrust more specifically for the way legal changes and the way bigger companies are acting on them. How do you see us going forward and what's the best way to kind of get everyone on the same page in terms of morals and ethics? Drop the competition. We are not in competition with each other. 
these outside big entities are coming in and they're instilling a fear within people that they need to be competitive. We are not competitive. We are not in competition. We are the opposition. We are not in opposition. We are just an alternative. We need to join together and be really happy for other farmers' successes that are doing wonderful. We need to be happy for, you know, passing out your your genetics and somebody else did a better job than what you did. Like, that's freaking rad. We need to be happy for each other because this sort of like fear-based competitive thing is coming into play. And I really think that if we can drop that, that's just the answer. I realized you know, that we are really a commodity and that, you know, the large corporations are wanting to capitalize on our intentions and on our ethics. And then if farmers are not mindful, they could potentially join forces with, you know, corporations. And then in the end, the corporation just acts like a corporation does and they just sell, potentially sell you off or sell off your whole your your face or what you've created your marketing what all that and then so you know this is a time when we're just trying to say hey you know what let's just not be exclusive with any one person let's just keep your autonomy let's create independence and autonomy and autonomy let's create products maybe they're together maybe they're within each farm and create a network so right now it's just don't get eaten by a corporation. That's that's that basically the mod. You wake up in the morning and you're like, okay, okay, how am I not going to get eaten by a corporation? And don't think that you know you've got one contract that's in front of you that that's going to be the last one that you're ever going to see. And we really want to see more protracts rather than contracts. Yeah, so don't we sign really, any contracts. No contracts. That would be- contrary to your well well being, you know. And and independence and realizing that you can work together with other farms and say, hey, you know, what's hot? What do you guys got going on? And the more that you share and we talk to each other, then we're creating a much larger commodity. Like Josh said, I mean, we are the commodity for the first time, you know, this year, we, we started realizing how many thousands and thousands of pounds that the Pure Collective already produces per year, whereas these huge corporations are just talking about, you know, what they're going to do in 2021. We are already doing it. The only way that these corporations are going to get the keys to our castle is if we give them to them. So keep the keys to your castle, share them with your friends who are going to be respectful um, and ethical in the same way that you are. a co-op. For sure. So you guys put out your perspective on the whole Phylos debacle a few weeks back. And to me, it was, you know, a beautiful kind of statement of authenticity and kind of reiterating what we need to do to move forward. But there wasn't a lot of views expressed on specifically how you see the phylos situation and what they're doing. Do you feel like we're at a point now where it's almost very problematic to incorporate any sort of genomic testing within our kind of garden or our cultivars? Well, I mean, you know, for sure we weren't totally against what happened with phylos and what happened there. You know, that just seemed like, Something that, you know, it really brought up the conversation is as farmers, where do where do we stand? 
you know, what, how do we work together? And, and we look to like our food systems and we look and we're looking to what's happened with like food. I mean, you know, this, this has happened before. So we're, you know, we're looking into open public domain and, and breeding and, you know, I, I do genomic sequencing comes from, you know, large corporate machines. And so, you know, you'd have to be really skeptical to use that information and think that someone else isn't going to use it. And maybe they have better technology to use it than you do. I mean, personally, I just want to give a big shout out and a thank you to Phylos. What an incredible opportunity that we were all given to look at the dark side and to realize we better get our shit together and we need to start creating this powerful entity, you know, within ourselves and how is it that we can pull together. And since that time has happened, I mean, the education that Josh and I have 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 searched out, you know, we've gone to mentors, we've been talking to people that are way smarter than we are and who have had way more experience than we have on this. And how do they feel about, you know, public domain and open source and, and markering and patenting. And what I keep coming to as far as the cannabis plant, she's an adaptogen. Cool. Patent away because great. You're going to patent a seed and then I'm going to take that seed and I'm going to put it into my deep red, rich, beautiful garden beds. And it's not going to look like your seed that you just patented. So you know, we need to give credit to the cannabis plant as well. She is not just soybean. She isn't tobacco. She isn't corn. She's not going to be that easily controlled, you know, in that way. And I think that we need to focus more on being the best. What is the best genetic that we're going to put out this year? So you can go ahead and you can, you can patent your, your 2017 strain, but let's talk about what you're in 2020 we need to be pushing ourselves to be better and to create better strains um not be looking at the past of what was because she's constantly changing and you know when you say open source and and um you know genetics like that's exactly what it is so if you put every all of your information out in the public you know that anyone can use it so you you'd have to be you know really skeptical about or or decide whether you care or not i mean because maybe at one point you're just like well you know i'm in evolution right now like kelly said you know what i'm in the middle of right now is making something new and making something new i mean none of us really necessarily keep the exact same strain forever and if and if ganja could have been could have been patented and controlled. I think they would have done it back in the thirties when they got rid of it so that they could chemically fertilize cotton and other wheat and stuff. And bring I, in I, the think, GMO I, think, I think that the, the cannabis plant would have been genetically modified then and controlled then, but I don't think it actually can. So I think maybe on one level, we may not actually have to worry, you know, about, about that, but we are also, not joining that and don't condone that at all either. Yeah. And I, and I don't feel really bad that people are spending millions and millions of dollars to try to figure out how to patent and marker this plant. Like go ahead, do it. I I'm really having all of my bets that the cannabis plant will have the last laugh and we'll just take all of their money. So, you know, that's, that's sort of what we go on, but also this phylos thing has given us now, you know, like I was saying, we, we went to, 
Corvallis, we sat down with Alan Capular for many hours. And any of you who don't know who Alan Capular is, aka Mushroom, please go online, learn about him. He's an incredibly intelligent geneticist. He understands what markering and and genetically modifying is because he did that in his earlier years of life. And and what we came to is you know, since all of that has happened, we are now, which we were already planning on doing, but it's with much more intention, is we're doing a pure certified breeding project right now so that we can get seeds from a particular farmer and we can pass it out to 50 different farms. We can take a little bit of data between ourselves. That is public domain that seed that varietal becomes actualized and that's really important because there's 40 other farms that have done it so we really say bring it into the public domain if you want to you know have a seed or or a varietal that is yours that you would like to keep as yours you're going to have to give it out to a whole lot of people so that that becomes actualized so that nobody else can take that from you. And we feel like that's much more powerful than paying a whole bunch of money to patent something that can be changed anyway. So how do you feel about genomic testing in general? Do you feel like it's almost inevitable that ultimately the data set will be sold off? Or do you feel like there is a way to get this information while feeling safe about the results and it not falling into the hands of, say, Big Ag? Well, guaranteed it's going to be sold off. So to think that you're joining something and it's not going to be sold off is just, it's just not true. I mean, it's it's already been sold off everywhere, but with food and everything. So I think that... Human beings sell out. And yeah, I mean, corporations are meant to sell out. It's like being <clears throat> angry with a cougar that kills a bunny rabbit. You know, like it's the nature of big corporations. Big corporations are going to come in and they're going to crush. And the only way that we can prevent that is by joining forces with each other, like I was saying before. So maybe you use it and you, and you, you know, take what you want out of it. And maybe you've, you've created a, 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 a protract that works for you with your, with your, uh, with genomic sequencing company, there are companies out there that might anonymize your information and, and you know, you, you might find a company that you, you can trust, you know, for us, you know, and there's universities, you know, that you might trust to, um, to, to work with, but, you know, to think that big ag is not, you know, out there, that's what, it's what big ag does, you know, it's what they do with genetics and stuff. I think our, our value, I think we should just not worry about it and just make our value <clears throat> the way that we grow and the, the diversity of genetics rather than worrying about one strain. And I think that it's really interesting. It brings up sort of this, this term ownership into the world. Like, the ownership of a certain strain that you've been working with 10 years, but the human beings were working with it 10,000 years before that. So it's like, what's ownership? What, what is it that we own? And it's like, we feel like, Oh geez, well we have to own it before they own it. And I think that, you know, is, is sort of this, this fear. And that's where it's sort of that, that the competition thing that I was talking about, like, why is it that humans feel like we need to own something, especially a seed? Like, I can't even believe that that's legal. But of course I can, because legal is based in corporations and corporations are here to crush. So 
I, I love what the Dalai Lama says, learn the rules so you know how to break them. And we can look at the incredible failures that genomic sequencing and GMOs and yeah. and even hybridization has given us. Like, oh, yay. So now we have 17 different varieties of 2,000 different potatoes that we could be eating on the planet. But there's only 17. Like, I'm just making up those numbers. But it's like we're – is there something about humans that likes to set up a system that we can't even work within? And I think that if we just sort of take a step back and realize what wasn't working within genomic sequencing is we'll realize like, why do we want to do that? What it, it just doesn't make any sense because then it starts to have ownership. And like I said before, I, I love my varietals and Josh and I work really hard on our strains, but, we got those from somebody else 20 years ago. And it's kind of like the, the, you know, the give it away, you know, adage, or maybe it's a Grateful Dead vibe. You know, you could, the, the tapes were not, you could never sell them. You had to give them away and it only made everything better. I mean, when we gave our, we give our seeds away to say Nick and Liz at Green Source Gardens and they come out with something that they like, like they love the Zelly's gift and they're like, Oh my God, I'm going to, you know, put that into some of my genetics. I mean, to me, I'm like, Oh, that's, that's awesome. Uh, you saw something in our genetics that we're working with. Yeah, oh yeah, go for it. You know, make whatever you want out of it. You know, have a, have an awesome time. I can't wait to see the plans. Um, you know, so we why would we have seed exchanges and seed swaps all the time everywhere we go, every single event that we do? If we were worried about patenting or owning anything, I think we just it's so diverse just fall in love with the diversity and just not worry about it that's that's kind of what we feel right now we've always given our genetics away we're not going to patent them and it is and and I get it too it is really weird that this you know guy is coming in with a three piece suit on he's never even smoked cannabis but he wants to rule the cannabis world i get it 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 is very strange. You know, we had this tight knit, beautiful cannabis community for, you know, is my entire adult life. So this is like a whole new trans transition that I'm, I'm sitting at the table with these people that are talking about cannabis. And I'm like, I know you've never even smoked it before. So it's, a, it's a really interesting dichotomy. And I think that it comes back to what I was saying before, you know, if, if we don't want the castle to be given away, then don't give away the keys, you know, keep your genetic tight within the people that you love and see what they can do with it and be happy that they're creating something awesome and be really grateful that your own genetics came from somebody else that worked on them for a really long time and be grateful to them rather than feeling like you've got some sort of an ownership over it so like, josh are and i worried are worried about the, some the licensed producer stealing our genetics and doing better than we can with it it's not going to happen like Go for it, but you're just going to steal the genetic and put it into like a stupid system, and it's not going to come. She's not it's gonna not going to come out the same. Uh-uh. So it's just kind of like, uh, you know, and and uh, you know, anyway. So we 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 loved the idea of open source. We loved the idea of being able to see the genetics and being able to see the connections. That was the coolest thing about the idea of the galaxy or something like that during the time was to be able to say, hey, this is connected to all this lineage and I mean that that would be really interesting for us in genetics but I think we're moving into a time that we're almost moving away from strains on some levels and we're just looking at plants more like chemovars and 
and and what their chemical compounds or their terpene terpenes are and stuff and so i don't know there's a lot of ways to, to work with the cannabis once it's grown now okay good answer good answer so something i wanted to ask which is kind of related but not really about genomic mapping type of thing I've seen a few people post more and more frequently about how sap analysis from leaves can be used as like a nutrient profiling technique. How do you feel about that as kind of the basis for uh, the evaluation of a nutrient program or uh, kind of some new things you're implementing within your own cultivars? Well, anytime that you can learn more about the plant, that's all really exciting and sap, adding, adding a sense. Yeah. And sap analysis has been happening with, with all different types of plants, you know, within agriculture, uh, for a long time. And now people are just starting to talk about it with cannabis and it's just another way to look at, you know, how well your plant is uptaking different minerals and different nutrients. And that's really going to still come down to the microbiology and, and what's present and everything in your soil as well as leaves but there's also an incredible you know intuitive value of being able to look at a plant and be able to get a feeling for it and say yeah you're healthy and you just know that it's healthy and I think that you know what I would suggest to people that are listening to this is create a better relationship with with your plants in your house with your cannabis plants with your garden plants with the plants that are around your property because that's going to give you a better you know communication and a better relationship with plants and I and I think that we have this deep connection with plants as human beings on the earth because we eat them we cultivate them we can't really live without them they create our oxygen the symbiosis is so deep that i feel like that's a really beautiful thing to be able to see the health and well-being of your plants is just being in tune with that dna connection that we have with plants on the earth and i think a sap analysis you know is going to tell you you know whether you have enough you know trace minerals or whether it's you know a strong reading or a high number or not but it's not going to tell you oh you need more magnesium you know it's not going to be like oh you're 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 high on boron or something like that so i mean there's this going to take a level of intuition i think that the that it's extremely crucial maybe to use the sap analysis as you know part of your analysis you know and then and then you also have a soil analysis that you have and a brick reading. To, you know, well, and yeah. and and with soil tests and soil analysis, you are able to to test, you know, your organic matter counts and your microbiology, and that's. And I think at the end of the day, you're just gonna you're gonna recognize, oh, the, well, this soil is really rich enough, you know. When you have a really live, living, rich soil, like I, on our land right now, our greenhouses and all of our land is like. I'm feeling super good right now about the plants getting into the soil right now and just taking off. So, um, and even, even when you test a soil and you could test the soil and then you, it could say, Oh, well, it's got these certain amount of minerals, but you still don't know what the plant is uptaking or what the plant is not uptaking. So, you know, diversity in your soil is is so important for the ultimate health of the plant because then it gives the plant the ability to uptake what it needs as it needs. 
And so, I mean, a soil analysis after every flower cycle is really helpful if you're doing indoors, you know, and outdoors maybe once at the end of the year or something, unless you're light depping and then, you know, you could test it. But I think what we've just come to is just add more raw materials, create more biology and just make it just a crazy worm farm. <laughs> a crazy worm farm. I like that analogy. That's pretty much what it is. That's good. That's good. So we see the claim that there's a lot of the hydroponically or synthetically produced what people would refer to as Cali bud, uh, most notably strains like cookies and gelatos. It'll often be kind of commented that, oh, those are full of PGRs. Just look at the way they look. You know, you can tell. And likewise, we don't see people like the cookie fam or people who produce these cultivars really talking much about the nutrients they use. Do you feel like if someone doesn't want to disclose something as seemingly simple as their nutrient regime, it's not too far-fetched to assume that maybe something more than what meets the eye is going on behind the scenes? Yeah, I mean, that, you know, my guess is that they're surviving every single round that they're getting through. And, you know, they're just stoked they have weed at the end at, of the run, you know. And plus, you know, it's with cookies and, and different varieties like that, you know, it's, they're hard to grow. So, you know, it's, it can be, it's a finicky plant. It doesn't have like the big, you know, harvest and the big, you know, buds or whatever like that. So, um, you know, I mean, I think if you have to question it, don't smoke it, don't buy it. It's, it's that simple. Yeah. You know, if, if you have to question it and you don't know what people's growing practices are because they're not out there in the open and they're being secretive and private about their growing practices. I mean, that's not IP. People try to say, oh, my growing regimen is IP. That's sort of silly. OK, intellectual property and what you're feeding your soil. All right. To me, that's a big red flag. Just people that are more, you know, upstanding. um, uh, about what it is that they're doing and what they're adding it is the people that you want to support. Yeah, of course, of course. So how do you, I mean, you kind of touched on the point right there, but how do you feel about organic companies that like maybe produce a nutrients or a soil? And again, they won't release specific information about maybe the ingredients they use. And yeah, they say it's IP or it's proprietary. Do you feel like that's, you know, even if it's quote an organic product, it's just, it still needs to be viewed with suspicion? Well, I mean, I can only say what we've done and, if you look at any of our products, it has every single ingredient in it and it has the exact ratio. So what we say to people is everything that we put out is something that is good for the world. And if, if you want to learn from it and, you know, you want to copy it, I know that's not what we're necessarily talking about, but go ahead. Like for us to be able to be forthright is just really important because I just, I just think that it's important to, to share information. And if people are not sharing, then of course you got to wonder like what kind of skeletons do they have in their closet? And, and then people will say, well, you know, people can grow and make your product and, and go and do it themselves. And we're like, you know, more power to them. That's, that's awesome. Has it hurt our business? Absolutely not. Um, 
people want to buy our products because it says exactly what's on there. It's no different than if you go to a grocery store. I want to know, I want to know what ingredients, every single ingredient in the food I'm eating, it's no different than in what I'm smoking. So what I'm putting in my soil is what I'm smoking. So of course I want to know every single ingredient. Yeah, it's, it's pretty obvious. So do you favor a fungal or a bacterial dominant uh, soil during a specific stage of the life cycle? Because we hear things like having, say, a fungal dominant soil is good for boosting the plant's immune system, maybe for things like terpene production, which are often thought of as a secondary metabolite or a secondary function of the immune system, whereas, say, a bacterial dominant soil might be more advantageous to promoting growth during vegetative or the early flower stages. Do you agree with these ideas or do you just kind of let the plant do what it wants? Well, we let the plant do what it wants, and but we also – so. But having said that, I would say that we would we would go. For, you can't just soil from material to fungal dominant, you know, based off your cycle of your plants. So you kind of have to choose, like you know, a, a soil that you feel is is really live and rich. And and a fungal dominant soil is really really important for um, nutrient um, breakdown and and metabolization. So we would want a nutrient. Uh, a fungal dominant soil and maybe for the vegetative we would use some of our fermented plant juice or some kind of high bacterial plant juice um, teas to be able to get some of that nitrogen or growth hormones in um, in the vegetative cycle so we would that's how we would do it and fungi and bacteria they work together you know it's so important to have both of them in the soil at a lot of different diversity and a large uh, amount. You know, you want to have lots of colonization of both. And just like within our body, if we were to check our own microbiome, it changes from day to day. It changes with whether it's a cool day and then you've got like lots of bacteria that wants to come right up onto the surface of the soil or whether it's super hot and they go really deep. Well, the plant's uptake is going to change from day to day as well. And when you've got like an indoor situation, um, what we've been learning more and more is that you have to, what we were going into gardens, you know, many years ago and doing consultations and and taking a lot of um, microbiology, uh, a look at the microbiology that was happening within the soil as well as nutrient and, and what was going on with the mineral ratios and all of that. And we were realizing that in cannabis indoor gardens, there's a tremendous amount of bacteria and people were really trying to grow these plants that were super bacteria rich. Well, when you have soils that are super bacterial rich, then you have such a greater chance of any type of a pathogen coming in and taking that over because fungi is so incredibly um, voracious and it's it's very strong. So if there, it, it becomes like a garter. And if there's a pathogen that's going on in the soil or you've got fusarium or pythium or, or any type of a root rot like that, you know, your fungi is the one that's going to be, you know, right there at the beginning. So fungi is so incredibly important to have within your soil at all times, as well as bacteria feeding your plant food. So, you know, there was that thought that fungi is the only thing that can break down phosphorus. And yes, that's totally true. So then people started saying, well, now you want to have a really fungi rich 
you know, environment more in flowering because it's going to be breaking down the phosphorus. And that is true. And also plants are still going to decide from day to day and, and colonization is, is going to ebb and flow within that soil. So adding a lot of different types of food in your soil that's going to feed your beneficial fungi and your beneficial bacteria is, is really ideal. Higher amounts of organic matter. Yep. Yeah, of course. So, this is a kind of a, a zoomed out question, but I've been thinking about this one a lot. How do we go about raising the value, be it perceived or just simply in the marketplace? How do we go about raising the value of sun-grown cannabis in the mind of consumers? Is that the end goal, to get it on par with indoor, or is it simply a case of outproduce them? Well, I think it's partly it's create good sun-grown flower you know i mean show show where it can shine so to speak with it with its um sun and um you know and just um helping people realize the ecological impact i think a lot of people when they go to stores or dispensaries or they look online and they're buying i think they if they've come across um a co-op of farms or a farm itself and they have the opportunity to buy from a farm that's doing something that's ecologically sound and positive that I, I believe that that does add the value that <clears throat> adds value. And we've seen that with farms and we've seen that with dispensaries that like soulful in California is a really good, um, you know, uh, example of, of a place that's really shown, you know, let's say Californians, what good sun grown looks like and, and the farms that grow it, you know, and there's, there's farms that they work with and they, and the farmers go into the, to the place and they talk about their product and they meet the farmers. So, um, and when regenerative farmers all join together, then we can actually set the value of what super high quality flower looks like. And, you know, I think it's important too here that, you know, we really appreciate all of the indoor, you know, growers out there that don't have an option to be outdoors, you know, thank goodness for you for supporting, you know, sick people and supporting patients and supporting your friends to not be drinking or taking hard drugs, you know, showing them the way with cannabis. We think that, you know, indoor has really helped bring the plant forward you know she's been the one that's been incredibly persecuted and if we can hold these strains and still have these indoor gardens well we're activists and still having a voice for that plant so you know we're not I think that there's an incredible value in indoor especially when you're just still respecting the plant so I don't know if the conversation is so much about indoor or outdoor I think it's about like respectful way that the plant is grown conscious cultivation you know i mean it, what's what what's valuable about sun grown is that it's positively um, impacting the earth as we've talked about numerous times already tonight and that's and that's a real why that's important and then if you're looking at an at, you know cannabis as an industry you know you you it's it is a plant that that is naturally grown under the sun and so to to be able to support farms that do that you know, is really valuable. And we've really seen, you know, farms 
have more value with their plants. So, you know, it's, you kind of have to be, you have to be a jack of all trades. You have to be a farmer and you have to be able to really share your story in a way that's enticing and, and really helpful to, um, consume. And, in, and it's really important to us that these people who are cultivating this plant and have a tight relationship with this plant, have a future with this plant. It's so important that the cannabis community and the cannabis culture continues forward that corporate, you know, takeover doesn't completely happen. And we believe that that's going to happen by people producing the the least amount of, you know, cost per gram for them to be able to stay in this industry and for them to be able to continue their cultivation. So that's another reason why we really encourage people to do sun grown, to do outdoor light depth, to use the sun because it's so much less expensive. And it is really being able to offer that alternative to the corporate cannabis. We need to stay in business and a good way to stay in business is to save a lot of money. Yeah, of course. On that same topic of sun-grown cannabis, what types of companion plants do you recommend to use in conjunction with cannabis farming? Because recently I've seen some posts that criticize clover, which is often held to be a, a really good companion plant. And some people are saying, oh, you know, it just robs the soil of nitrogen. It's not really that good. What things do you recommend to go alongside your canna cuttings? Well, clover is an indicate. You know, it can be an indication. It can be a communicator that tells you whether you have bugs or not. So I wouldn't say that it's, you know, creating the problem at all. And and part of using clover as a cover crop is to understand how to use it. You know, you wouldn't want to let it grow too long to get super infected. You would want to, you know, kind of work it into the top layer of your soil. And if you keep it you know young then and and vibrant you know it's it's way less likely to have any pathogens on it so learning how to use your cover crop is 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 really important and some you know buckwheat is is a really good companion plant um sorghum uh sudanese sorghum grasses is 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 a a cover crop and a companion plant that you can use that colonizes mycorrhizal fungi so it can help build the colonies of of, of grass and um, of mycorrhizal fungi. And also cover crop, what's around, you know, uh, see what's thriving in your zone and area. If you're in an outdoor farm, you know, see what's thriving in your zone and area for us. Everybody, we just showed a bunch of pictures on our Instagram of our plants that are coming up and people said, oh, you know, what kind of cover crops did you plant? And there's a ton of them in there, but we didn't actually plant any yet. Um, It's just what's coming up in the native soil. So that's another really huge benefit on utilizing closed loop methods that you can just see what wants to come up and what wants to thrive. Um, But for indoor scenarios or people that just have like, you know, maybe a small garden that isn't that connected to nature, we really love to rotate our cover crops and start out with sort of a nitrogen rich one that breaks down really easily like chickweed at the beginning. And then it can move more into, um, uh, quinoa is a wonderful one. Buckwheat is another great one. And then you can 
start moving into more like phosphorus rich and potassium rich ones you could do a corn if you wanted to if you grow your own corn but whatever your comfrey is one that people use a lot but it's one that gets powdery mildew if it gets uh, if it stays alive a long time so you almost kind of have to keep that um, cut down and, and really fresh too. And that's another thing is that you were talking about clover. It's sort of getting a bad rap. Well, it gets a bad rap because people are leaving it too long maybe. And then, you know, more things will colonize on it. So we really love to pull up our cover crop and lay down a new one um, continuously. We know that, I mean, pretty soon it's going to be exciting. We're going to be able to have hemp as a cover crop because, you know, we're producing so much hemp seed that we're going to be able to you know, have that also and see what that's like. So we're just continuously trying new things. To- you know, you can use um, lemon balms and holy basils and and different things, you know, that around in your gardens and not as a cover crop because then it would go crazy. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, nettles grow all around, but that's not necessarily the best cover crop either, but we kind of have it as a cover crop in our area. A poppy is a really amazing cover crop. You can grow poppy flowers and it create and it contains the highest amount of phosphorus um, in a plant varietal that we know of. So if you take a whole bunch of poppy seed and it only takes a few poppy heads to do a massive cover crop in in your indoor garden or even in a massive outdoor garden. And that's like immediately readily available phosphorus. So we always like to end our, our flowering with, with poppy. And in between, you can just look at different val- um, values, mineral values of different seed varietals and say, oh yeah, that would be cool to try during this time. And use your intuition, use your creativity, come up with new things. Of course. It's all about finding what works for you. Absolutely. I see a, a few different UK grow and hydro stores now stocking some of your products, which is absolutely fantastic to see. I note this because the UK has historically been a very kind of, you know, hydro or soilless dominated market. Do you feel like the tides are finally turning in this regard? And how can we help to crack hydro store strongholds, so to speak? Just through education, I think that even the hydro stores, um, you know, have been taught the wrong thing. They were taught by big ag, you know, NPK ratios, and they thought that that was what was the right thing to do. And if we have the opportunity to bring a totally regeneratively grown indoor, deep cultivated soil with dragonfly earth medicine buds into a hydro store and say, look at what is possible. That's an incredible education, you know, to them as well. So do I think that the tides are turning hell yeah the tides are definitely turning and the tides are turning because microbiology is making a comeback in the cannabis world and the more that we create healthy microbiology the more healthy microbiology enters our own microbiome which makes us more intelligent which makes us make better decisions which helps us educate the the grow stores and and i think that, you know, like I said before, we're on an incredible bell curve and we all just need to run with that and not feel like, oh, well, if I'm just getting into the game and I'm just learning about this, that I have nothing to offer. You have tons to offer. Everybody has something to offer that is some kind of a teaching around nature or a way to do it better that's better for the earth. 
So I see on some of these stores that you guys have got your own molasses product, which is great because I always had people ask me a lot of questions about molasses and some of the variants like treacle and the blackstrap molasses and all that. What type of molasses do you guys like to use and how do you like to use it? Well, um, definitely organic blackstrap molasses would be, you know, something that people usually cut corners on. But um, we, we're not, we don't actually even use molasses anymore, you know, or any kind <laughs> and of And we don't sweetener. actually have a molasses product. Um, well, that's, that was the Dragonfly Europe. And that, that yeah, that. So that wasn't there was, us. There was some, you know, enough in Europe to have it. But the, the point is, do you use molasses or not? And <clears throat> initially it was like, you know, tablespoon per gallon molasses and, that's going to add to your microbiology. But I feel over the years of testing that um, the the sweetener and adding molasses and sugars has really been overdone and could potentially spike uh, pathogen, uh, pathogens in your teas as well. So um, if you're going to use molasses, make sure it's organic because a lot of people will cut that corner. And um, it can be a really good iron, you know, iron or mineral supplement to, to your teas, but I would not overuse it. But use it in very trace amounts. There's such a tremendous amount of sugars already in plants. And, um, you know, we can really see that with if you're feeding your soil a whole lot of sugars, it's really no different than if you're feeding your own body a whole lot of sugars. You're going to have more yeast problems, um, which is, you know, pathogenic yeast. Or and soils mildew. sort of have that more mildews. You could have all different types of – Yeah, it's going to throw off your pH. It's going to make it way more acidic. And repetitive uses. You know, yeah, so, so just be really there, careful. In nature, you know – plants survive off of other plant juices there isn't really like molasses that comes into nature so really think about your microbiology and and like i was talking about before you know that first drop and how many ripples it can create you know look at that last ripple and you and you want it to be a healthy balance all the way through and when you use lactic acid bacteria to break down plant you know juices and weeds there's there's a lot of living material in there and a lot of sugars that are just naturally present so it's it's kind of a it balances itself out we don't use any extra sugars on our property okay and if someone did want to use sugars like a in say like a molasses form or something along those lines is there one that you would use preferentially because i've had someone ask me you know should i use honey should i use molasses should i use agave nectar and when it came down to it i thought well molasses has got a few little extra minerals in it but i mean i'm not sure if there's too much of a difference what do you guys think there's a big difference. Yeah, there's a big difference. Honey can have all different its own different microbiome. Um, honey is alive, um, especially if it's non-pasteurized. Um, it's alive. It has so many different types of things in it so that it can throw off. It can be antibacterial in some yeah. forms too, and different things. Yeah. So you know, is raw of a good sugars you can get that's not highly processed and that's totally organic is the one that we suggest and also to use it in very very low ratios a half a teaspoon per gallon really is all you need to spark those initial that initial microbiology it sparks those initial bacteria 
but it's really no different in a brew than in the body. You know, when you're feeling a low blood sugar and you eat a candy bar, you know that that candy bar is only going to last so long. But if you eat like something really high protein and really rich and full balanced, then that's going to keep your blood sugar going for a really long time. And the teas are no different in, you know, you don't want to burn out your microbiology. You want to give it something that it can feed off of long term as well. And the best, I think the best syrup or the best sweetener that you can use is yacon syrup. And I'll spell that Y-A-C-O-N. And yacon is a South American tuber that's really watery and really sweet. And it's a prebiotic that's really high in inulin. And it can be really good for human consumption as well, <clears throat> but it's often boiled down and and juiced, and it, can, it creates a molasses. And we um, are growing a lot of yacone on our property and encouraging a lot of farmers to grow yacone um, on their property. And that's a real. And you can also sometimes find it in a natural food store, yacone syrup. Everyone, you hear that? Store that away in a neuron somewhere. What would you say to someone who says that they really want to get into organics and, you know, they really feel passionately about the general message being put forward by Dragonfly? However, they just feel like they can't quite get their crops high enough to merit switching over. Um, I think that you just have to try it out. You know, it's no different. Whenever you try something new, there's always a learning curve. There has to be a learning curve. I mean, if there's no learning curve, then we, we wouldn't be learning how to get better and better at things. And um, we hear that a lot. And then we also hear the same person say that come back a year later and be like, oh, my God, are you kidding me? I can't even believe that I ever thought that I couldn't have higher yields or that I couldn't grow better medicine. So we know that organics and living natural biological soils is the way to go because that's what plants grow in. Um, it was humans that took them and put them in some other type of a medium and tried to, you know, create that growing cultivation practice. And I just think, give it, give it a little bit of time, learn as much as you can, be curious, be creative get new ideas and share them. And maybe it's not just about, you know, the ending yield. Maybe it's the journey along the way and all of the good information that you're going to get and all of the good microbiology that you're going to get along the way as well that's going to help you become a better gardener in the end anyway. So if this was someone's primary concern for switching to organics, for example, if you're forced to grow in a non-organic way, just specifically to get enough yield to say support yourself, do you feel like there's been a certain something missed there in respects to their relationship with the plant? Well, what's missing is that it's actually the opposite that in a lot of legalized and recreational jurisdictions, it's actually you have to grow it re regeneratively or organically in order to pass all these tests. So it's, it's kind of turned into a good thing for an organic farmer because in the end it's, it's kind of, yeah, I think a lot of people have said, Oh, well in these new systems, you almost have to grow organically because there's too many residues and different things that show up. 
in the flowers. So, um, I, I think you have to ask yourself, what are you having your relationship with? Are you having your relationship with the fear of losing your job and being forced into something that you may not believe in and may not even be part of your ethics? Or are you having a, a relationship with the cannabis plant? And I think that's just something that you want to ask yourself. Some people just want to have a relationship with the money and do a nine to five and, um, you know, not think about anything else. And, and, you know, there's a whole lot of people on the planet like that. I personally want to have a relationship with everything that I do in my life. And I know Josh feels the same way. We just want to be involved and want to be able to have integrity with what we're doing so that we can be proud of it and so that we can be interested in it and so we can remain creative with it. And we're not just working a nine to five and we're looking at the bottom line. Um, and, and in a way that I could really tell people who only are looking at that bottom line, polyculture is equally as important as poly economy. We cannot just be growing cannabis maybe anymore. Why not have an early spring crop of strawberries on your land or try to diversify with other things? You know, we can't just be selling a pound of weed anymore and think that that's going to suffice for us. We have to become product makers. We have to have an ending product that brings more value to our flowers so that we can bring value to organics and have a higher quality product. We have to become more creative. And, and that is what's going to give us more value for what we're doing and more value for the product in the end. Definitely, definitely. So how do you think we can go about raising the general perception in the mind of the consumers about the quality of outdoor? Because at the moment, as maybe ideologically inaccurate as it may be, there is the general consensus that people want you know to quote that indoor. Um, how do we go about changing that so that people are demanding that high quality organic outdoor? Right. Well, I think it matters where you live. You know what I mean? I think that, uh, people are not being able to see good quality outdoor and, you know, the indoor that's around people think that it's just about the looks when it's really about so much more than that. So I think it's just a matter of education and, and I mean, we've brought our, cannabis to different cups and different things and I mean it's incredibly crystally and it looks really beautiful it smells really good and I think that in certain ways we've redefined what's even possible to grow outdoors up in British Columbia and um, you know the light deprivation has added a lot of quality to sun-grown you know plants so light dep is, is a really easy sell to people and um I think that just having a good cure and a good quality um, way of harvesting your sun grown and just being able to do it right. I think when people say, you know, can, can I make the leap of faith to organics? I mean, it's not much of an actual leap because, you know, just building a really good soil and having a really quality stable base within your soil is going to give you um, the ability to take advantage of the sun and create and create you know good flower from it so we see really amazing outdoor sun-grown cannabis so i think you know it's possible to do it in other areas and 
you know, it's what it's what makes people feel better most of the time, too. Yeah. And I think that people who say that, you know, indoor is better than sun grown, they just haven't had good sun grown. I mean, that's really what it comes down to, which is what Josh pretty much just said. And I think that that's important. So the more sun grown that's out there with really good varietals that do well, you know, in the sun, because what people are doing is that they're taking these indoor varietals or a clone or a seed that has been grown indoors for a really long time in a synthetic environment or in a, in a soilless medium, and then they try to grow it out side and they don't understand why it doesn't do very well. Well, that plant doesn't have the intelligence um, of a natural system. It's lost its intelligence. It's lost the ability, you know, to be able to uptake and grow to its full potential because it's only been used to sort of that IV feeding, more allopathic NPK that doesn't understand microbiology or an endophytic, um, you know, reaction within the plant. So, you know, outdoor is really wonderful when you're working with outdoor strains. And just like Josh said, I, I mean, I wish I could give every single person out there listening, you know, one of our flowers and, you know, they would, they would say something really different. And there's often a really good feeling that comes with it. I mean, if we hear that a lot, you know, people smoke our weed and they're like, Oh, you know, I, I usually have a certain feeling associated with it, but I think when you get a really good sun-grown herb and, and even with and in our experience, people have a better feeling from it. So, I mean, if you're go- – why are you smoking the weed? Are you smoking the weed because of what it looks like or are you smoking the weed because of how it feels? So maybe, you know, challenge yourself on, on what why you're doing it. Definitely. So the Pure Seal itself is very much communally orientated and accredited certification. Do you see this model expanding into other facets of the community over, say, multiple avenues? And specifically, do you think we'll ever see something like, say, a Pure Dispensary where it's just full of flowers and products produced under the Pure certification? Yeah, it's happening already. So it's exciting. This is already happening And product makers want to have the pure certification so that they're only sourcing flowers from pure certified uh, farms. And it creates this beautiful sacred commerce commerce that's regenerative. And, yeah, there's been lots of talk about that. There's dispensaries that totally want to come on board and, and see what that's like. So what we're looking at as a whole collective right now is different certifications uh, that's still pure certified. Um that represents that same really high quality and community monitoring and community run. One of the uh, questions that got submitted by one of our fans was if they say just bought a stock standard, because I know that there's so many variables here, let's just say they bought a pretty standard farm. How long would you guess it would take for them to get it up into shape to the point where it would probably pass the pure certification? I mean, it's really hard to say. I mean, it it would take having, you know, when we say closed-loop systems, that means some type of system that you've, you know, some that works on top of itself, some compost or some, you know, good things that you have that you're 
catching water, saving water, making your own seeds. I mean, I would say, you know, you, you can't just get it and within two weeks, maybe you've bought someone else's farm that's already done something <laughs> really amazing. I mean, you could actually, you know, come in on, and, and pretty quickly then. We've, we've had people so. take, you know, five years that are just coming to it that said, we're finally ready. We've been five years in the making and we really want to do this. And then we've had other farms that have done it in one year that they put all of their energy and effort in and every bit that they had, you know, to creating more closed loop systems. Um, so it's really not a time thing. It's an energy thing. And, and, and also depending on where you are, because if you're in the tropics, being closed loop is, is a whole lot easier easy. than if you're yeah. in the desert. So, you know, there's different variables for people. But what is really cool is that the tremendous amount of closed loops that have come to our attention, you know, like people have created closed loops out of just pure brilliance. And that's just really awesome. So yet again, it brings that intuitive sense of creativity and, and that your land is specific to you and that, you know, everybody is a little bit different in the way that you do things on your own land or in your own indoor garden or your own tiny backyard garden you know, is it's a is holistic certification. So, you know, you have to be ready to not be using non, you know, toxic substances like butane or propane or some type of high, we don't allow hydrocarbon extracts like we've talked about before. And, and people can, you know, tell us how clean it is and they can give us tests and they'll say all kinds of things. But in the end, we just, for us, it's a toxic compound, and and to clean it, a toxic compound out seems counterintuitive, and is just, it's it's supporting an industry that creates a you know toxic compound, and and that's not okay. So as a you know pure certified farmer, you just have to be able to have a food garden, and you have to be able to have flowers growing and you have to be able to have some you know ways of making soil and you have to be able to have a, a, a functional um farm and you know that can come within one year or it might might take a few years of course so to change the topic ever so slightly what are some cultivars or strains you've been vibing with a lot lately well um you know there's uh, a lot of hemp strains that are being, you know, uh, explored. And those are really interesting to us right now because some of them are, you know, really high in terpenes and, and other ones are high in CBG and other ones are high CBD, in CBD, THCV and different things. So right now we're just really interested in exploring, uh, you know, cultivars that are unique, you know, I mean, and, and so some of those cultivars are, I mean, it's the cherry wine has been around for a while as a hemp cultivar, but we've been playing around with the cherry wine and the auto and, and the spectrum. And those have been really interesting. And, um, yeah, we're we're looking into doing some more varieties on that front. Um, and we've been still, you know, moving forward our own varietals. Uh, you know, we have our 840 male that we still work with, um, as well as other males that have been made off of that. 
you know, our Zelly's gift, we rejuvenated this year and we did some inline breeding with it um, way back. So something that's been really interesting to us is we brought out a lot of our early 2000 seeds just recently for all of our varietals on for this year. And now we're growing them again so we can rebreed those back in and we can really create stability. And what we're seeing in stability, which, you know, stability is a shaky term in the cannabis industry. And I realize that. But what we're seeing is as we bring even our lineage further of what's interesting to us, um, we're choosing plants and then they're being tested. We're really moving into and most of our varieties are full spectrum, full terpene. And that just seems to be coming naturally with with treating them well and so we've been even seeing some of our old like temple spice varietal now that's starting to have cbd creep into it so i think that it you know we're moving along our own stuff and and like josh said we're like now 80 percent hemp on our property and we're really interested in working with a hemp varietal that finishes here so our really big goal this year in breeding is to try to bring forth an early finishing high CBD hemp varietal. And also we're working with some auto flower seeds that we got from Heart Rock Mountain and um, the Cali Gold. And that's been a, a project they've been working on for a long time. And so we're excited to, you know, to work with some auto flowers. Um, and we are, you know, working with some hash varieties that we've gotten from, uh, you know, Kush Kirk and, and some 24K varieties and um, some Snapple cookie varieties and, and different things like that just to see, you know, what kind of uh, syrup we can get. Just kidding. <laughs> but we have reindeer <laughs> Reindeer syrup is is a is another variety that's a, a Ruder Alice strain that we've been you know that we're that we're gonna try out, and um, so that's really interesting this year. I don't know we've gotten a lot of strains from a lot of different people this year, and we're just doing our best to do uh, a little bit of everything just to see to further explore you know what we're what we can grow. You know, we've got some land race varieties happening, some Milana creams um, going, and yeah. Yeah, really nice diverse mix of genetics there. When can we expect to see the launch itself of Dragonfly Genetics? Because a few people have told me they're hunting for your seeds like nothing else, and, you know, the struggle is real to get them. Certainly seems like there's demand. When is it going to be time? Um, you know, maybe we'll do some this fall, this fall might be, might be a good idea to, to do that. And, you know, we have given out a lot of seeds when we see people and, uh, you know, I guess it's just a matter of, you know, making it happen. And we make a whole lot of seeds every year and we give them all away. So our genetics are out there. <laughs> And uh, I guess it's just people that see us in passing. We're, we're happy to gift them with varietals. But we do always ask people, you know, how are you going to grow these? And it's a really nice idea for us to know that our seeds are going out into a respectful garden or, you know, somebody that's going to turn them into something really cool. 
Um, but I, you know, I don't know. We just keep giving them away and people keep out. I think that we give away too many to actually sell any. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, we'll see. What we really want is a field test kit so that we can really do, you know, a lot of the breeding that we really, you know, analyze, you know, the analyzing on our own property. So, I mean, eventually we get a good field testing kit and that would really help our breeding and that would really help us, you know, feel good about putting seeds out into the world. Of course. And I know that you have some interesting kind of collaborations or at least working closely with Snodgrass Family Farm Genetics. Can you tell us a little more about this? Well, you know, they they have really amazing breeding projects that they're a part of. And since they're, you know, family to us, you know, we've, we've traded genetics back and forth over the years. And um, really... Um, Bobby and Meredith just have a really beautiful piece of land and, and they're just exploring, you know, genetics that have come to them throughout their thing. So we don't have any collaboration, you know, official collaborations happening um, at the moment. Other than we've been sharing seeds yeah. for years and yeah. breeding off of each other's stuff. It, and it so be, in that way, it's really collaborative. Yeah, no, it would be really fun to come out with something, with something together when, when we come with something, when we get to something that's really beautiful. But um, yeah, no, they, every year they, they explore a huge variety of genetics and, and do a lot of breeding. So it's always really interesting to find out what they come up with. And would you ever consider doing like a rather formal collab with someone who you really closely align with? Like maybe, you know, Duke Diamond or someone along those lines who you respect and vibe with their work already? Always. Oh yeah, for sure. We love that. Yeah. We're all about collaborating you know in any way that we can with information with uh you know good flowers with seeds we even have some heavy days genetics going on right now too. yeah we so, do you know what i'm saying we're pretty stoked so you know <laughs> there could happening. be a collab coming right there just saying <laughs> uh, big grin on my face thanks very much guys um so the next thing i wanted to ask is and they're coming up really beautiful by the way really gorgeous so super excited about it Oh, you guys are too kind. I'm sure you're giving them a very loving home. Oh, we for sure are. So with that being said, how important is it in your opinion to continually be pheno hunting? It's everything. I mean, that's what makes it exciting. If we're not pheno hunting, then I always feel like, well, what am I doing? You know, everything that we've gotten up to this point, we did without, you know, only maybe in the last five years, have we been doing it, even any testing Everything was pheno hunting and what it smelled like and what it looked like and how it did in the garden and what it made you feel like when you smelled it or touched it or you're next to it or when you smoked it or you ingested it or put it into your food, you know. Pheno hunting is is being a cannabis cultivator. It, they go hand in hand. So this is a bit of a peculiar one, but I really wanted to kind of dig in here. But I tried some Mac 1 that was grown in the States outdoors with, you know, the kind of the pure type of, I think it was grown on a pure farm. But, you know, if not, we'll just say, you know, very closely aligned with that type of thing. And to be honest, 
it just didn't come across to me as it was on the same level as some of the indoor stuff in terms of the caps, uh, in terms of the Mac specifically. And so my question is, do you feel like there may be some cuttings that are just more suited for outdoor than indoor or for indoor than outdoor? Or do you think that anything has the potential to shine just as good in either or? Um, well, I think that I touched on that a little bit before is that, you know, a lot of these varietals, uh, have been grown indoor for so long. They've been cuttings off of indoor. They've been put in synthetic or soilless mediums, and they don't really have the intelligence to, to go into an outdoor, uh, cultivation, you know, methodology or, or practices. So, you know, it's particularly with the Mac, that's a really indoor varietal and, you know, it's been cloned off a whole bunch of times so I think it would take you know several runs if we ever get an indoor clone uh, from somebody or something that we're really interested in wanting to grow out we take a couple of years to grow it out to see what its full potential is because guaranteed if we're getting a synthetic clone from somebody it takes a long time for that clone to come to its full potential because it doesn't have the intelligence of biological uptake so, you know, it, it's going to take some time. And, and I think that the plant's intelligence needs to match the intelligence of the soil. Of course. So, something I wanted to ask you guys your perspective on was the use of, quote, natural growth regulators. So, I know that I've heard and seen a lot of people using gibberellic acid in the vegetative stages and some people will consider this to be on par if not the same thing as using PGRs, you know, the more kind of synthetic uh, natural ones. But other people will say, oh, but it's just a natural hormone that's in the plant anyway. Where do you sit on that? Do you view it as a natural thing or as a synthetic thing? Well, gibberellic acid is a natural compound that's found in nature. So I, I wouldn't say it's not a synthetic compound, but I think that, you know, anything that's been, it could be that it's synthesized and it could be that some of those, I think it's kind of like, do you like isolate, you know, CBD or do you like full spectrum, you know, medicine? I think that, you know, when you start just using gibberellic acid on its own, you know, you're, you're, you just don't know what the source is. And I think that you can get plenty of gibberellic acid just in like nettles or, you know, in some kind of plant. And I would just much rather get it from that. So, you know, to me, that's just, uh, it's kind of like using an isolate. That's what I think. Yeah. Okay. And so would you view it, I guess, just as a clarifying point as, somewhat akin to uh tricontinol where it's like yeah we just get it from the alfalfa it's all good exactly that would be that's a perfect analogy i mean it's kind of like yeah exactly it's just you know humans desire to think that it's one compound over the all it's not to say you know cbd on its own can cure but you know the whole entourage is way better gibberellic acid you know on its own can grow plants exponentially and I've even heard with feminization that gibberellic acid used in conjunction with colloidal silver um, in the early flowering stages can be a way to feminize your plant, silver theosulfate, which is what's commonly used for feminization. So, you know, um, gibberellic acid is, is, is a really heavy um, growth hormone. 
Of course. And yeah, so I, 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 anything that's isolated like that, we're just automatically skeptical of, and we don't use it. Yeah, good point, good point. So I'm going to take a bit of a step off the edge here and talk about something random that I saw the other day on Instagram, but I'd love to gauge your opinion on it. What do you think about the introduction of mushroom spores from psychedelic mushrooms into your grow media? Because, I mean, I'm sure we've all seen the odd mushroom pop its head up throughout a flowering cycle when you flip the lights on. What if it turns out, you know, you had some cubensis or something like that pop up? Well, I mean, I think then you would have the most awesome thing in the world happening, you know, because who who wouldn't want psychedelic mushrooms popping up underneath their their ganja? I mean, any any sane person would want that, you know. So <laughs> I, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna say that you know to say psychedelic mushrooms is you know, a little bit broad. So you'd have to go a little bit deeper. You'd say, okay, which ones do I want? Wood loving psychedelic natural mushrooms like azure essence or cyan essence or, um, uh, potent psilocybin, which is already the cyan essence. But anyway, those are wood loving. So you, you could inoculate, um, you could get wild, and um, spores and wild patches and mycelium and, and and inoculate those in your grow medium. You would just have to be pretty, you know, intentional about giving it enough other other um, food to eat. Like so, wood chips. You know, a lot of people are doing Hugo culture and wood chips. Well, that works really really good for um, wood loving psychedelic mushrooms. So I think that's really, really smart. When it comes to um, cubensis, that's going to be more of a manure-loving mushroom. So um, a way that pr- a person could utilize a cubensis run would be to, um, you know, make compost and sterilize your comp- your compost with, you know, through turning um, the compost, and then you know you'd have to know mushroom cultivation but you could inoculate a manure compost and put it on on, as a top dress to your plants and grow a flush of cubensis with your weed and but but cubensis really likes super high humidity and and flowering cannabis doesn't necessarily like super high humidity so that's true there's a really awesome balance that you got to find there it would be like you would want to have your mushrooms flowering during vegetative time and then so the be best, done the best way to do that would <laughs> be to have flowering. two greenhouses one on one side which is a flower uh, flushing um mushrooms and that one on the other and that would be pushing uh, co2 air into the other greenhouse which was growing weed and that would be beautiful and so what are some mushrooms be it psychedelic or not that you would recommend people to try to incorporate into their life and ingest kind of regularly if possible? All the medicinal mushrooms, reishi, chaga, cordyceps, agaricon, um, turkey tail, so when uh, it comes lion's to- mane, it's a nootropic. There's so much damage that's going on within our brains, within Wi-Fi, that we need to start introducing nootropic medicine, which is the lion's mane, um, you know, incorporating a lot of the different tree polypores, because then it takes all of the intelligence from the tree and puts it into the polypore. And then it makes it where you're actually getting direct tree medicine 
through the the polypore. So wow. allying with mushrooms right now at this time of Earth's toxicity is really important. And then how do you utilize that in you know in what mushrooms do you use in your cannabis grow? Because a lot of ones she she mentioned like chaga is not one that you can grow. You know that's that's a wild mushroom that only grows on birch trees. But um, you know you can inoculate logs and, and use that as a as as a way of building your beds. And you could have reishi or lion's mane or maitake logs making a raised bed. And you can bury um, lion's mane logs in the soils. So there are ways of of building your soils with uh, medicinal mushrooms um, through log spawn. So people can look up log spawn and find out more about that. But that's, and then also garden giants, like Kelly said, is King's Trafaria or Rugoso annulata. And <clears throat> that's really amazing compost eating mushroom. And it's really useful in living soils. And if you, and if you can't grow it, then find somebody who is growing it you know, in an organic, um, cultivation because yeah, allying medicinal mushrooms are, are really important. And a lot of them you can't grow, you know, like lion's mane, it's something that would be difficult to, to grow inside of your indoor cultivation of cannabis, but you certainly can find it out in the woods or you can find somebody else that's cultivating in it, it in a respectful way. Um, Turkey tail is another one you can grow on the logs. Yeah. And like a Garricon is, is almost impossible to get unless you're buying like the mycelium of somebody who is cultivating the mycelium or Rishi, you know, it's, it's sometimes finicky depending on where you're growing it. So it, I, we, we think that it's okay to be sourcing it from other people that are growing organic medicinal mushrooms as well. It's hard to spread yourself that thin, right? I mean, it's. I think it's a crucial part of a really sweet, like, farm to have mushrooms growing on it. So I, you know, we're all about you know people taking it on. Awesome. Oyster mushrooms. I mean, that can be a huge, easy thing to grow on your property. Yeah, definitely. I think I'm probably gonna go eat some after this. There you go. <laughs> so this is something I've been dying to ask you guys about for a while. How do you feel about the rise of what I call CBD everything? So like, you know, CBD burgers from In-N-Out and CBD candy from the gas station. Is this a positive thing? Yeah, we have CBD gas we just got for our car. It was incredible. <laughs> the car really loved it. Um <laughs> Yeah, well, it's great because I mean, then more hemp is being farmed. Then there's more people cultivating it. Then the plant gets to come more out of her prohibition. She gets to like make make more of a scene, you know, into the world, and and more and more people are cultivating her. And as more hemp is is being grown, more land is being remediated, and that's a huge positive. Um, on the earth. So it's kind of CBD, like, everything, hurrah. Then that also means that people's cannabinoid receptors are going to start getting flooded and that's wonderful too. And that's only going to help people become more healthy. I mean, it feels like, you know, a phase and, and it feels like something that's a fad and it's kind of like, you know, maybe it makes you roll your eyes in a little bit, but it's just kind of a testimony of just like, create rules and everyone's just going to exploit it on, on all fronts. So, I mean, really the main teaching is 
you know, to, to think that CBD is like the be all end all compound is really not true. I mean, so it's just, it doesn't have THC in it. So it's a non, it's not intoxicant. So people can put it in everything. And I mean, if people was putting a full spectrum extract in there instead of just CBD, I mean, that would be awesome. And I would love to go I would love to have it in everything I eat because really we that's why our, we have an endocannabinoid system is for it to be fully saturated, you know, and, and having it in your foods and smoking it are ways of doing that. So I think it could be really healthy. And maybe back in evolution, hemp was fed to animals and animals ate it and CBD and all the compounds were in the animal and then the people ate the animals. And so I think that hemp and cannabinoids were have been an essential part of our food chain through evolution. So really it's only respectful to our evolution that we have now CBD products and everything. I just think that maybe we should demand more than just CBD. Of course. And so how do you feel about vape pens? Are they a necessary evil? And given they do have, generally speaking, such a bland cannabinoid profile, how do you think we can go about getting this, what seems to be like a vital stepping stone between the casual enthusiasts and the more hardcore fans to incorporate a more holistic profile in it and really give people these medicinal benefits they're maybe not seeing otherwise? Yeah, I mean, you know, the vape pen is kind of like the remote control, like for the TV, you know, like back when it it was just convenient, you know, it was just, it didn't really matter. You could still, you know, do whatever you needed without it. But the vape pen is just kind of like people want to drive around or travel to other countries and have a vape pen. It's just, it's like, it's more of like a lifestyle thing. You know, nowadays, I think the the thing that sucks about vape pens is that they're just such a such a. Is that they're vape pens. Well, I the mean, the thing that sucks about vape pens is that they're vape pens. <laughs> and anyway, so. Um, but they're very convenient for people, and I think that's what people. And can also have you know, depending a, a high, so a high quality vape pen would be one that doesn't have weird residues on it because of where it was manufactured in China. Mm-hmm. So vape pens can be toxic to the mm-hmm. consumer and also toxic to the environment because they're just disposable. So an ecologically minded person really doesn't love vape pens. I guess that would be my answer. Or make sure that they're refillable and, you know, ones that uh, – because like Josh said – I think Steep Hill just did a massive study, a blind case study of shopping in all the different dispensaries. And they found that, I don't know the percentage, but an overwhelming percentage of the vape pens, you know, were just toxic in and of themselves because of the coil that was heating up. So I think that we can do better. I just, I think that, you know, with these beautiful extracts that can be made from flour, I think that we can do better and, um, you know, refillable, reusable ones that have glass. Um, also people are maybe a hemp plastic vape pen, you know, I mean, let's just hope that innovation can catch up. If we can get a good 
you know, vaping unit that makes it there's there's maybe reasons why vaping makes sense. You know, it's less smoke and it's less carbon. And if you have a challenge along, I mean, I'm not going to demonize anything. I think we can be a non-discriminatory, non-discriminatory ganja ingesters. I think, you know, it's the right place at the right time, you know. When in Rome, do as the Romans, you know what I mean? Like, you might have to smoke out of a vape pen, you know what I mean, every once in a while. But I mean, you know, you know, it's not going to be the natural choice. Of course. So one thing I wanted to bring up with you guys before we jump on to some of our fan-suggested questions was this idea of the green renaissance. I know that Julie and the good folk over at Skunk Magazine have been pushing this idea hard, and you guys are well on board with it too. What kind of stimulated you to push and put your backing behind this idea of the green renaissance? Well, I just think that it's kind of what makes sense. It's what's natural. You know, we like, like Julia stated, it's, you know, it's, it's not a rush, you know, it's more of an awakening. It's more of a reawakening and a, um, you know, something that's more long lasting and it kind of has an essence to it. So, you know, it just, it, it feels good to, to think of it as, you know, something that's, emerging and and you know a lot of people talk about you you know kids don't want to be farmers anymore and 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 indigenous cultures in different places in the world but actually a lot of kids do want to be farmers thanks to weed you know what i mean as long as the governments don't fuck it up too much you know we might be able to you know have a lot of young amazing farmers that want to grow you know because we get people that are young all the time that be like you know the greatest dream on earth would be to have their own farm so um i think that you know there's just a lot of ways to look at things of course so we might slide into some of the fan suggested questions these are in no particular order or rank but the first one i've written down what are some inputs that people can easily grow for themselves on a small scale that would be beneficial to both their gardens and possibly even their body Nettle, comfrey, um, alfalfa is awesome, super easy to grow. You can cut alfalfa so many times in a year and it just keeps coming up. Same with comfrey. Um, Those are all really easy things to grow. Edible flowers are really great to grow. You know, they contain, you know, terpenes and, and they're nice for our own bodies. And I think, you know, lots of different diversity, um, is, is great. But those are the four that are really easy to grow and anyone can do it. I mean, you can grow yarrow, you know, there's there's a lot of different um, foliar sprays that you can, I mean, if you can grow ginger, and gar, I mean, really, I this is what you should grow is as much as you can. Mm-hmm. Like what, how about this? What can you grow? Grow that. Mm-hmm. Because really... It's it's not just like choosing one thing, you know. There's it's there's a world out there. We're on the internet right there. Anyone lives wherever they live. They could be in Sao Paulo, Brazil, right now, and 20 million people around them. And what can they grow? They can just grow simple cover crops and pots, and then just take the cover crop and cut it and make a fermented plant juice out of it. And they can water all their plants, you know, in their house from that. Um, you know, there's, there's so many things you can grow. And I think it's just explore botany, you know, understand 
kinship gardening and the evolution of plants and, and just try and grow as much as you if you can grow a moringa tree that would be awesome because you could just sit there and cut the moringa tree back all day and, and another thing people can grow is spirulina i mean you can grow algaes in your in an aquarium in your house and that's something that's really healthy for you and it's also good for your garden. So, uh, and you can grow deciduous trees because leaves are really, really amazing. Uh, leaf mold is is so beautiful for soils, and that's something that can be collected every fall. And it offers great oxygen around your property. So, growing fruit trees also you can use fruit. You, there's, yeah, really the sky is the limit. Just what what grows well in your zone and area that you feel like you can take on that makes it really easy that then will make you more curious to want to grow more things. And there's lots of plants with known high biomass. So those that look for plants that are high in biomass. Definitely. Spirulina is definitely one that's been on my radar for a minute now. And it ties into this next question of what is a good place to start in regards to bringing what would be considered a very nutrient deficient soil back to life? What are some of the ingredients you would first and foremost be looking to incorporate? Um, well, life. So, you know, you could plant cover crops on it and turn that in and that would be the a really fast simple way um go to the forest and find some area that is is living and really healthy you can bring that back i would look maybe to worm castings or some kind of compost or um composted manure or some kind of animal healthy animal place that's near you maybe someone has alpacas or llamas or something or rabbits and you can get some good pigeons i mean you can get some pigeon poop and chickens something like that you don't want to overdo it with that kind of stuff because it can be hot but if you're trying to get quick life back in there you know animal manures when when it's coming from a healthy source is, is a really good way of doing it or worm castings and and one of the most immediate ways that people in suburban areas is just always keeping nice compost going and having worms in it so that you always have good accessible inoculant biology. biology soil to put on top of any of your plants at any time. So just using your kitchen scraps and then that makes people more knowledgeable about, hey, maybe I want to grow organic food because then that's going into my compost pile, which my worms are eating, which is then going to go into my cannabis. And, and put Bokashi so, and, you know, Bokashi and when your food scrap. So your food scraps are already pre-digested when they, when they go in the worm farm, you know, at one point you're just playing, you know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. So the next question I have, I'm honestly not too sure about the context of, so I'm just hoping you guys kind of understand it better than what I do. But someone said, how do you feel about the flow canner slash other sellouts um, and how all of the regenerative cannabis farming award recipients get lumped into this same group? Well, I mean, to say that the regenerative farm award winners got lumped into a group is just, uh, it's not, it's not like it wasn't premeditated by any means. It was what it was, was Flo Kana was wanting to work with really intentional 
conscious farmers in Northern California. And when you win the farm award, you just get to be known and people are like, Hey, I want to get your product. So, I mean, I think it was just, uh, you know, it was just kind of a natural thing, you know, um, what the pro I think here's the, I think what the problem is, is that when companies get really, really huge, they start taking investment from other companies and with Flocana, they just got really huge and they took investment from companies that are not in line with regenerative practices. So it put, it's starting, it started to put an ethical question in with the farmers. So, you know, what they're, what, you know, what you want them to, to be doing a good thing, but when they're taking investment from companies, you know, that are connected to Marlboro or Altria or companies that are, you know, harmful to the earth, you just have to, it's, it's really hard to navigate, you know, that territory. So people are torn, I would just say in the community right now, you know, on, on that subject right now because of those, because of those principles. And and it's really important to say that, you know, there are there are, you know, new horizons that uh, cannabis farmers haven't thought about before. You know, when cannabis farmers are signing contracts, that's why we were saying it's so important to only sign protracts right now, because and, and we can use this as an example, you know, when when farmers are signing contracts they weren't necessarily thinking about, well, geez, this company could sell out to something else. And then where is my IP and, and where is, is, is my SOPs, you know, within that, or what is the name, where is my branding of my own farm? So it just is really giving us the ability to become more intelligent and more savvy with the corporate cannabis world. And I think the more that we see, you know, what corporate cannabis, um, you know, is capable of is the more that we need to come up with smarter alternatives. But, you know, it's, with the Flocana thing, they have really beautiful farms that are working with them and they have not changed in how they're cultivating and they haven't, you know, they're still growing regenerative and they're still, you know, creating wonderful education really within community. People. And they're, and everybody is really wonderful. It's just, we're being, being caught in a corporate riffraff that as cannabis farmers, we are new to and, and we need to become more savvy. It's similar to what happened with Phylos too. I mean, they started joining forces with Syngenta and Monsanto and, and Dow Chemicals and all these things. That's just when you start getting, you know, that, that much investment, you start having to like what you'd say, sell your soul, you know, to, to the monster. And that's why we were just saying we want to, be independent of that and we don't want to be swallowed by corporations that's just you know it's new it's new territory we we have to be um dolphin pods in an ocean of sharks yeah great analogy so where do you hope to see the craft cannabis market in 10 years from now and how do you think big ag will factor into this picture well, I think Big Ag can just folly around with the idea that they can cultivate cannabis in a way that's, you know, better for people. I think it's just going to be funny to watch them, you know, fall on themselves over and over. And it would be like whatever on that front. I think 
um, craft, whether it's, you know, when someone says the word craft cannabis, I mean, you would, you know, to me, I'm like, does that mean organic or regenerative? So it's not descriptive enough. And so just because they're small doesn't necessarily make them good. So if, if it's craft and it better, I would hope that it's already regenerative or, you know, I, I use re, the word regenerative instead of organic because we want, you know, you know, more than organic. So in, in the future, what I would like to see is, a really huge value for consciously cultivated cannabis. What I would like, what I, I'm assuming that it's going to be like Safeway or some kind of large supermarket chain selling food all over the place, but the farmer's market in any town is always going to have better food. I think that there's going to be like micro brews or more valuable or something like that. I think that, you know, consciously cultivated small farms that have better strains and and a better story. I'd like to see that that be a really well-defined, you know, market to where people are really well-educated on what corporate cannabis looks like and what potentially regenerative craft cannabis looks like. And I think that, you know, it's really easy to greenwash and it's super easy to greenwash the term craft so just because they're small, are they using the same synthetic nutrients that big corporate cannabis is using? It definitely needs to be more definitive. And, you know, what we want to see in 10 years from now in the cannabis industry is much more conscious cultivation because the earth needs it. We need it as its, you know, as its consumer and the plant really deserves it for, um, you know, healing us for, you know, so many years since the beginning of humanity. And I'd like to see processors and really conscious food companies and which we are seeing. So, you know, what we're seeing is the beginning of conscious commerce. I mean, a company that wants to make a cannabis product has to source their products. If they go to source their products and they come across the pure certification and pure farms, I mean, it's kind of a no brainer. I mean, of course they want that. So I would, I would, I, I'm seeing a high value for consciously cultivated products, and I, I guess we can just leave it there. Uh, I think that's going to grow. It does grow. That's why natural food stores are growing. That's why the whole movement is growing because people want. They're tired of being sick, and the system and corporations just are constantly making us sick everywhere, and it's just. It's not cool. And that's why CBD is so popular because it all of a sudden is offering an alternative. It's giving us a little bit of a gauge on what's happening with humanity and what's happening with society right now is that people are, you know, feeling disenfranchised and disillusioned from big pharma and big ag. We're learning how to do it better. And heck, if if it's going to be cannabis that leads the way, that's going to give people, you know, more knowledge of ways to do it better, then that's freaking awesome. So, you know, a lot of people are saying, oh, CBD this, CBD that. Well, that's definitely a gauge on what society is wanting. And that's outside of the pharmaceutical world right now. And to me, that's awesome. So given the success of the Dragonfly of the dragonfly brand in regards to cultivating sustainable cannabis do you have any plans or interests to become involved in say larger scale production of hemp 
Uh, well, we're definitely interested in hemp production and, um, you know, how large can it be is basically what we're looking at this year. You know, I mean, this is a year when we're deciding whether feminized seed hemp growing is something that we certify. Um, we're deciding on, you know, can there be a, a hundred or a 400 acre hemp farm, you know, can a 400 acre hemp farm be pure certified or regenerative? We don't have that right now. And they would have to really stand out and have some kind of really thought out, you know, crop rotations or something happening. But um, we're having those discussions now really big time within our group as to, you know, people are saying, oh, you know, is it scalable? Well, it's really interesting because we utilize the term scalable and big ag and is is scalable the way that we've been doing it successful? And the answer is no. So we need to understand what is scalable for regenerative agriculture, period, not necessarily what's scalable for regenerative hemp even, but just what's scalable. So, you know, what we see in saving the earth is, you know, a ton of small farms. Small farmers are what is going to save the earth right now. And that absolutely goes into hemp farming if there's big corporate hemp that's going to come in and they're going to be, you know, producing 50 million acres of hemp, which is what's going on over in China right now, can they do that regeneratively? Uh, you know, we don't really believe that that's possible. We need to bring back the small farmers. But at the so same that- time, there's a lot of hemp that's overtaking other crops in the field, which is a good thing. So large scale hemp farmers might be, um, taking out a farmer might be growing that instead of something else which they would spray so you know hemp could be you know is going to be something that's going to save you know agriculture i think in a lot of ways very much so so this is related specifically to your uh, i'm gonna have to clarify this and re-ask the question do you pronounce it pagodas well, we have so many different structures on our property. We actually have a couple of structures that look like a pagoda. And Josh is an amazing builder. And he uh, always takes on a project with like amazing creativity. So every one of our greenhouses, you know, that's been hand built by us is just really beautiful. It has a style of its own because we want to remain creative and keep the juices flowing for us too. If we're building, you know, you know 10 of the same greenhouses it's sort of boring so we're always trying to keep style and beauty um involved on our farm of course of course i love that home kind of feel they must all have and so just in regards to the various types of structures you guys have how does it compare having one on say a hillside versus on a flat surface like does the gradient change the dynamics of it and specifically this person wanted to know is airflow problematic when you're on the side of the hill well um for us we have a really beautiful airflow that comes through off our lake and um and our so a hill is really nice to have because it creates natural airflow in the morning. The heat is rising in our valley and the air is always going up. And in the evening it's going down because the air is cooling off 
so we get a lot of really good you know airflow and i i prefer to have a slope to grow on really because if you have wa- a water source above you then you can gravity feed everything down and it's kind of you know it's a natural way of collecting you know you can create different zones and environments really easy by terracing so by going to asia you know all these years and even guatemala and central america terracing you know is something that really just caught our eye and we're just like oh my god terracing so beautiful and so we've made really big terraces on our land and what it does is just naturally makes an environment and then each environment can grow kind of a different thing so um a flat a flat surface is hard to work with you know it's a lot more exposed um you have to you know really use trees i think a lot more for flat surfaces to create environments and and food forests and stuff like that so our slope you know makes makes helps us out a lot of course we build, and we build our greenhouses to have a flow through design for air so we don't have any um fans in any of our greenhouses and the way that we utilize them is more of like a roof or an area to where it's um there's a flow through design so there's no stagnant energy anywhere yep so we've kind of touched on this before but it's a bit of a specific question so I'll, i'll throw it out there maybe we'll get a specific answer to this specific question but if you were to get a plant from whatever source it may be, a friend, uh, just maybe it's just had a bit of an unlucky run with things, but let's just say it's really quite sick and it's not doing too well, what would be your protocol for getting this out of that heavy shocked state and back up and alive and boosted? First of all, separate it from the rest of your your plants. That's the first thing that you want to do. So many people feel like, oh, well, I'll just bring it in with my other plants and into my environment where my other plants are healthy because pathogens, um, you know, are so prevalent right now. And a lot of them you can't see with a naked eye, like say a broad mite um, and a russet is even hard to see, even though you can. But, you know, isolating it and then just putting it in a really beautiful soil immediately and just giving it teas. I always feel like earthworm casting tea is the same as chicken soup. If you want to bring a plant back to life, just feed it earthworm casting tea because it's easy, it's absorbable, it has all of the nutrients, and it's really basic and easy for a plant to uptake. Because just like when we get sick, it's difficult for us to uptake things because our immune response is low, our microbiology is low, you know, things are not uh, responding so easily. So, that's Add why. a lot of biology, and if mm-hmm. you can have it outside and have it get rained on, or you know, if you can, uh, you know, use the natural elements to your advantage, depending on the time of year and everything like that, mm-hmm. you know, you have to be, yeah, you, know, you have to be smart about it. But you know, if you can bring it outside and, and, and you know have the natural elements on it, that's really smart too. So this is an odd one, but hopefully you're going to have some perspective on it. Do you have any thoughts on how Vermont was the first state to legalize cannabis via state legislation as opposed to a referendum? And do you think it should have happened by a referendum? 
Um, I think any way that it can become legalized is great. And it just so happened that in Vermont, it became legalized through um, more political power rather than people power. Which I so think shows the that's maturity. Awesome. That shows how it's matured, too. I mean, Oregon also just um, through state legislature just um, is the export of cannabis to other states so it's not legal to export to other states but within the state of oregon it's legal so (laughs) what they're saying is you know this is we're ready for this law when it changes so i I think that that it's it's always going to be better you know for long term you know to not have systems change and stuff like you're not if it's if it's a vote by the people then you're basically still against the the legislature and if the legislature makes the decision then you may not like their decision but it's going to be more stable i think for the states so that's that's what we think yeah good answer good answer so another specific one but probably going to be more easier to answer this fan wants to know do you view comfrey as better to use during a vegetative phase during a flowering phase or it's equally good for both I think it's equally good for both. Mm-hmm. It can it contains a vast um, amount of different minerals, and if you have a comfrey patch, you know, feed your comfrey patch with uh, good teas and stuff as well, so it can uptake good nutrients. But it's so well balanced that you can use it during you know from the very beginning stages of a seedling all the way up until your last days of flower almost. And the roots are good on winds. <laughs> so what would be your go-to source for organic boron? Because it's a trace element that's commonly mentioned as lacking in soils, but it's also quite difficult for many people to come across. Um, I don't have an exact source of natural boron other than just creating really good compost, you know, from diverse sources and, you know, getting your boron from naturally, you know. And if you're really concerned about any type of mineral deficiency within your plant or in your soil, then it's always better to have it come from a plant source rather than a, a whole mineral source. It takes a tremendous amount of time for a mineral to break down. But if you, you have a go-between plant, um, like say that, you know, borage actually is a good boron plant, um, you can add like a tremendous amount of that to it and then use that plant in a ferment or chop it up to put it into a soil because then that's going to become, in, you know, equal or, or very easily absorbable. It's just plants understand plants. And whenever you're utilizing a plant source as your main mineral source, it's just easier for the plant to digest it. It's easier for the microbiology to break it down instantly and it becomes readily available. Yeah, good answer. So what kind of resources and approaches would you recommend we look into using to help educate our politicians? And should we be pushing for exclusively legislation that's designed to help care for the earth at the same time as allowing production? Or is simply a foot-in-the-door approach good enough initially? Well, I mean, I think ultimately we're, you know, looking for a a full package. And there really are a lot of really good examples of – of companies that have been able to to provide that, you know, so, um, there, there's, I don't know of, of a piece of literature that you 
could point, you know, politicians to that would say, you know, this is a you know, reason why you should legalize. I just think that there is a lot of activists out there and people that have really, you know, made differences in their local jurisdictions and they're, you know, they're moving around the country and there's a lot of lawyers that have become more and more savvy to what works. So I think it's just um, part of of the conferences are also, you know, connecting people with lawmakers. I think lawmakers are actually looking for people to communicate with in the community. So I think if you make yourself a little bit more available, then you will be able to, to help change. And I think that any time that we're talking about agriculture, we need to be talking about health and well-being of the earth. That's where we went wrong. That's the reason why we have tremendous illness on this planet is because those two conversations didn't go together. We decided that plants and agriculture should be more involved in science rather than in nature. And uh, we really missed the mark there. So hence, we have tremendously sick waterways and soil systems. And if we're not having conversations as we move into the future, when we're discussing agriculture about ecology and about healthy water and earth, then we were not doing our job. And I mean, the, the whole entire cannabis industry, as we know, it started out as a medical, you know, gift to, to ailments, you know, that whether it was AIDS in San Francisco or, you know, that was the epicenter of, of legalization was stemmed from that. And, and so it, usually a place becomes medical first and then it becomes re- recreational afterwards which is because then the whole medical aspect, it gets kind of thrown away because recreational is kind of just a big tax bracket thing where everyone can get paid. And then you kind of forgot that it was a medicinal thing. Well, it's the same thing with cultivation. I mean, you'd almost be missing out to just say, oh, well, let's just legalize weed and just forget about how it grows. It doesn't really matter. You know, I think that we should consider hey well this is a medicine and it should be cultivated like a medicine which is medicinally good for the earth so for us you know we're just going to go for the full home run or the you know whatever it is and we're just going to say i think we should have it all i think the time is now where this is no time to skimp i think we should ask for everything i think we should have all of it a healthy environment and legalization, all of it, but it's medical access, you know, in Canada it's legal, but we've lost access really. I mean, there's less products available to the consumer now through legalization than there was before. And that's lame. Yeah, definitely. So this one's a bit of an odd one when I first read it, but I mean, you know, there's a, there's a place for everything, right? How would you feel about sprinkling the ashes of a loved one into the soil and growing a plant from it? Well, I mean, I think that's a kind of a no-brainer. I'm, I'm, or maybe that's not a good term to use, but um, I think that's a, a My mother is in our greenhouse. Yeah, I mean, I think that's just, you know, sanctifying the, the ashes. I mean, for one, ashes are good for soil, so you're good there. And you're able to transform the energy and put it into a plant. I mean, it, maybe you have a placenta, too, and you put it underneath a tree. You know what I mean? It could, it could go on and on and on. It's the cycle of life, and we think it's beautiful. And all of our dogs are underneath our cannabis plants, too. We felt like that was just super respectful. Why not grow, grow 
a beautiful medicine, you know, over some, something that you loved, you know, that soul and spirit's not still there, but that body is, and it's a wonderful way to respect the body that walked this planet. Most certainly. So someone wanted to know, do you guys offer tours of your farm at all to the public, specifically those who are quite interested in joining the pure family? You know, we do not because we're really far away and we just don't have the setup to be touring people around. And then, and, and if we, if we, the time to, I mean, as much as I would love to, I think it would be healing to the, you know, people to be able to come to our farm. And I think one day we would love to, to do that, but we're just not set up for it. But I think that, you know, in a way that's kind of cannabis tourism or it's like eco tourism. And I think that is a thing that could be really beautiful for farms. And I know a lot of farms in California and, and different places are embracing that and bringing people to their farm and it could be super smart. I think that we just don't do it right now. And we have lots of farmer friends and people that are in the industry that will come here to get a little bit of education, and then we know that they're going to pass that on or something. So we've been open to it, but really the truth is we are we are so far away. It's nothing but like us out here. and um, It's like our own spiritual temple retreat too, so I think we just kind of get rejuvenated by being on, the, on our land, and sometimes that's what we need because we have, you know, a lot going on. So cannabis packaging and branding has become a focal highlight of discussion in recent weeks most notably anyone who's ever shopped at a dispensary probably has a myriad of containers that are just starting to accumulate after only ever having a few grams in them what type of packaging do you want to see going forward well that's a, a sad reality to you know there's so much there's millions of pounds of garbage you know based just on dube tubes, you know, which is kind of like amazing, you know. So Sauna Packaging is one new company that is making really conscious packaging that is hemp plastic. And also they use recycled ocean plastic. And that's pretty cool. And and that's interesting. It is still plastic in in a way. But if it's hemp plastic, then that's just awesome. Um, when it comes to biodegradable material, the only thing about biodegradable is it might be GMO biodegradable and you'd have to be careful of that. So, um, I think that, um, algae, there's algae plastics that are coming out and, um, that's also something that's of interest and well, and also we package all of our products in glass because we feel like. Um, it's important to also have a reusable packaging. So not just something that's recyclable, something that people can also reuse. So I think it's a thing too, because I don't, I don't in Canada, I, I think for example, I, it's, I think you can only use, if you're a licensed producer, I'm pretty sure it's like you can only use their packaging. And it's you know, really so. weird black plastic plastic that they just like did some studies on a couple of months ago and they left it out into the sunshine and realized that it off gas like a tremendous amount of toxins. So, you know, whoa, that's not very creative nor ecological. And it's um, unfortunate because of- Canadians are really upset about it as well as a lot of producers are feeling like, wow, I've grown this beautiful thing 
you know, flour and I got to put it into a weird plastic container that's going to fill up all of the, and, and, and the plastic that they're putting in it is not even recyclable in Canada. So people could grow really their stupid. own weed and then they wouldn't have to worry about packaging. That's one go. thing that would help. There you go. Grow your own. That's definitely it. So do you think that there has likewise become too much of a focus on the aesthetics of packaging? Like is having a fancy packaging like a legitimate reason or claim to charge more for the exact same product? Well, I mean, I think it's kind of a bummer to, to make it, you know, bring your packaging into your pricing. It's kind of like a, how it's unavoidable. I mean, you can't really do anything about it but i think that um you know cannabis packaging oh god it's just it's 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 a thing that you can't really i don't know i don't really know what to say about it it's it's an unnecessary it's a necessary evil yeah no i agree it's like there's there's always going to be people who want to package their product more fancy and more shiny and flashy and that's one thing but then you know, yeah, to have these rampant markups is just a, a bit of a different realm as far as I can see. I think it's partly standing out, you know. I mean, if you have your own equipment or your own packaging that you've designed yourself, it can help you stand out. And at the end of the day, standing out matters. And I mean, if someone loves their packaging and it's awesome and it's just sitting out on the counter all day and they're like, oh, check out this product, I mean, it helps. You know what I mean? So, you know, if you have to make sales, you know, might as well be crafty about it and make something good. But, you know, don't go nutso, you know what I mean? And create something that's, you know, a cost too, too expensive. Everything is already too expensive. Alrighty, so I think we are down to our last of the fan submitted questions. So it's a good one. I left it till last for a reason. How do you guys feel about cookies in general? Um, well, I mean, it has a... like the Keebler kind. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but um, you know, I it's 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 all about the hype. You know, it's blown I, mean, out. I think it's it's a flavor. You know, I mean, it's do you like the flavors? So, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think that a lot of people like the flavor and that's that's why it that, that's why it sells. But I, I think that people like wedding cake now, too. And, and, you know, now it's just cakes and cobblers and cookies and, you know, I mean, gelatos and oh my god you know and the mac and I, this I, and that it's just like whatever is the new flavor i'm surprised there's not a mac and cheese yet you know <laughs> i'm just waiting for that one to come out because that, that's probably going to be like, pretty sweet you know um but you know i it's a flavor you know i i'm not gonna i i like weed so you know i'll smoke cookies i i'm and i'll be happily do it you know um I'm personally not into that terpene profile of the cookies. Um, as a midwife for a long time, I can smell like cookies from, you know, a hundred other different bags because it reminds me of breastfed baby poop is what it smells like, <laughs> which is awesome. It's really, you know, an interesting smell, but it's not really a terpene profile that, um, you know, draws me. I mean, there's personally. so many flavors. So and it, but of course, uh, tons of people love it, and and that's great. 
Yeah, okay. A lot of lot of good points in there. Just to quickly mention, I think that uh old Capulator has made a mac and cheese strain, crossed mac to cheese. Well there you go. See? If I so if someone's thought about it, someone's already done it. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, right? It's one of the rules of the internet, I think. So um on to our final kind of little quickfire questions. First one I wanted to quickly ask you, what type of genetics would you like to see make a comeback? I would like to see, um, God, ones that are... I mean, I really love the Acapulco gold. I say bring it back big time. Love that. It's just... You know, as much as the original Acapulco Gold, and there is like different strains that people are calling Acapulco Gold, and it's not really the same, but that was really awesome stuff when that was going around. Yeah, I think that just, um, you know, non-feminized, stable bread, you know, smart strains, you know, that's what I'd like to see. Great answer. So, if you could offer one or maybe even two tips on selecting a male to our listeners, what would they be? Um, well, uh, it would be really nice to have a male that is strong and comes up, you know, and grows faster. I think is a good is a good trait because it shows, you know, that it's vigorous and. And of course, you know, rubbing the stem does help you get smells from the male. And I think that you should know what you're looking for in a male because sometimes there's colors in the leaf or in the stalk that show up really early on in life. And it can kind of tell you a little bit about what's happening later in life. Um, You'd you'd want to look at the the leaf structure, the... um, if if you like the node height that that the, that it's growing, maybe it's short, maybe it's reaching. Um, Mostly, we choose our males like to be really manly. So we like our males to be really strong and. And maybe it it you know maybe it came to its flowers early, so it's an early, you know it's more it's not late flowering. You would want to look for something that um, progressed faster. Um, and sometimes with disease resistant, you'll sometimes get trichomes on the males and that can, you know, signal that it's going to be, you know, more oil rich and oil productive and, uh, you know, red stalks or red stems can be something that you look for. You know, it's like, it's really, it's depending on what it says. Hard to say. Yeah, of course. It's a, it's a varied one, right? Kind of. I mean, it's really strain specific. I mean, if you were, you know, breeding land race, you would look for the thinnest leaf that you could see, you know, something like that. Or, you know, maybe a fat leafed hash strain. You know, I mean, there's a lot of it's I love that. It's endless. It's fractal medicine. Yeah. Just keep. So our next one, what is one strain that you just never particularly vibed with? Um... For me, definitely Kush. I don't, I don't, you know, sort of that like traditional, like what people call like a Kush flavor, which is like really high and like a humulene. I don't know. That's not something that I necessarily vibe with. And yeah. 
I really never met an anja plant that I didn't love. But that's just a terpene profile for me. And I would agree with Josh. I like them all. Yeah, that's good. I remember I asked you that last interview and you gave a similar answer. You were saying, you know, I pretty much like them all. So there you go. Consistency. Yeah, for sure. That's what we like. So what is one strain that maybe you tried, maybe you had the cutting, but it's now gone. It's now either out of existence or simply just out of your hands that you would like to be able to get back if possible. I do really like the Jack Herrera clone that we had for a long time. Oh, we had such a beautiful cutting. It was from Oregon and oh, just one of the original from the Jack Herrera family. Oh, and, and the, um, there was this uh, the White Witch, which was a oh, from the early too. '90s and the the early Trinity. The Trinity. The Trinity oh, that clone was so that used beautiful. To be around Eugene, like in 1989 and '90, that was really awesome. It was just super dank, mm-hmm. like crazy crystals, and just had amazing mm-hmm. flavor. And you could, ah, it was so good. Mm-hmm. That one was good. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, and the list goes on and on because we grow a thousand plants on our property and, you know, we don't really clone them. So they could have all been amazing. We have a black, a black or almost blue grateful breath cherry puff. That was a really amazing. And I really hope that we get a, a good, we have some seeds of it and we're growing it again this year, but that would have been another good one. Yeah, I think I remember even being able to sample that one um, on the farm. How did you like that? That one was nice, huh? It was phenomenal. And I think one of the things which standed out in my memory was that you would never have been able to guess that that was outdoor grown. It looked just as good as anything you'd ever seen indoor. Give thanks. Exactly. Blessed be. (laughs) That's it. So on to our final question for this chat. What is your ultimate goal slash hope for the overall trajectory of our little community? My overall hope is that all of the intentional, amazing farmers can continue to stay in business and make amazing products thrive in business. I would like that to thrive. I I really want to not get, it feels like you're getting penalized for making medicine. And, you know, when you're getting all these crazy prohibitive licensing and all this stuff, it just feels like you're almost getting punished for like creating medicine. And And I would like to live in a world where it's not like, can you get a license as it's once you have a license, it's how good can your medicine be? So I would love to see small farms being able to make really, really intentional products and being able to sell it anywhere in the world. I would love to be able to sell our products to any country in the world. And I think that anyone should be able to have access to it. And I think it should be really fun rather than funky, you know, which is kind of what it is right now. So I'd like to see a, a world where... We have these really beautiful, diverse gardens. We're growing amazing plants. And it's just simply a matter of our ingenuity to make really good products to be able to sell them. That would be nice. And for me, I mean, just one last you know, statement on that is that I'd really like to see all of the people that are incarcerated for cannabis to be let out. 
because it is uh, really not cool in so many ways. And that's really light language that I'm using um, that people who are in corporations are doing it legally uh, and people who are incarcerated were doing the same thing. So I would like to see all cannabis incarcerated people let out. And And it would be nice if they raised the hemp. THC counts to make it delta nine instead of total THC counts. And so we could have better medicine availability to the world. That would be nice too. And I hope that cannabis can change the world, uh, through teaching us so many things from seed to seed. And I think it's great that Denver decriminalized, uh, psychedelic. Yeah. And I think that's really cool too. And, and we really like nice people too. So hopefully our community can continue to expand and we can create together and we can be um, communicating and we can be collaborative in our efforts in moving forward. We can protect our own seeds by putting them into public domain to where we all can use them, to where we can all actualize them. I mean, we could go on and on. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. They're all fantastic suggestions and ideas. So I guess to wrap it up, do you guys have any comments or shout outs you'd like to make? Uh, The shout out we would like to make is to the earth. Big shout out to the earth for, you know, providing us a place to live and the opportunity to speak together. Um, Thank you. And this is an amazing opportunity to be able to share some of the things that we're interested in. Um, We'd like to shout out the Pure Collective and the Pure Certification and just all all regenerative farmers and all seed breeders and people that are making a difference in the world. And shout out to people that are able to resist the corporate takeover that's happening. And shout out to seed breeders and... uh, And shout out to all of the people that are still cultivating um, cannabis in an illegal situation. We feel you. We're with you, brothers and sisters. Thank you for continuing to grow the medicine. It's really important. Smoke weed every day. Smoke weed every day. What a brilliant way to end it. So thank you so much, Josh and Kelly, for taking the time to sit down and chat with us again for the second time. Thank you so much. You're awesome. We can't wait to see you. Hopefully, are you coming out again this year? Oh, we're going to see you on our land, maybe. We're going to see you soon, hopefully. Yeah, I'd love to I'd love to lock that one in. So let's hope we can link again very soon. Okay. Yeah, we love that. Thank you so much for the opportunity um, today. We just appreciate you more than words can say. All right, back at you guys again. Final thank you, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. As always, a big, 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 big thank you again to Josh and Kelly for taking the time to talk to us today. Be sure to go to the Dragonfly Earth Medicine website for all product-related queries or even just info about the Pure Certification. As usual, a big thank you to Radio Ridge Nursery for their support, your one-stop shop for clones. Seeds here now for all the best offers on seeds. They are the best in the business. 420 Australia, Organic Gardening Solutions.
And last but not least, the Patreon gang, whose ongoing support continues to make sure the show happens. I will see all you fine friends in the near future for the next episode. Thanks for listening. I'll see you.